Hey, yo, what's good? What's good? What's good? Welcome to Reflections of a DJ, the road podcast presented by DJ City. Big shout to DJ City. I'm one of your hosts, DJ Crooked. I've got DJ Never here. What's up, y'all? I've got uh, D Miles here. What's good? What's good? I've got uh, Jamie the Great. Yeah, what up? What up? And we got a special, special guest. I've known this man for a, a while now. Every time I came, uh, went to LA, I would go see him. He's one of the founders of Banana Split Sundays with AM and Aoki. LA Times uh, named him one of the best DJs in 2011. Big, big man. Been in the underground <laughs> scene since the 90s. He uh, had a small stint in New York. I'd rather call him a New Yorker from now on, even though he's from LA. I know, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. You officially a New York motherfucker to me, man. We got D Mike B in the building. What up, man? I'm like, I've been called a New Yorker before, like yeah. against my will, and it's it's fine. I take it. I mean, my my family <laughs> from New York. Yeah, and I, I was I was raised kind of half and half in L.A. and New York, but I have a lot of uh, a lot of Los Angeles pride, a lot of West Side pride. Yeah, yeah. Now nah, you from New York, man? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, like, yeah. I mean, musically, yes. Yeah, <laughs> musically, uh, yes. I want. I want to. Well, that's where I learned everything. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like yeah. When I DJ, people usually say like, like, "There's always that one dude in the club that's like, are you from New York, man? Like, why? <laughs> why do you play this song here?'" <laughs> You was in uh so you were what born and raised in LA pretty much? Was born and raised in LA. Um what part? Uh I was born in West Hollywood. I was raised in Beverly Hills, and um I went to uh school, boarding school for high school in Ojai, California, which is like an hour and a half north, like kind of by Santa Barbara. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What set were you from in Beverly Hills? I was from my own set. I mean, the house I grew up in, like where I lived, you didn't like your neighbors were like several miles away from you. So like, yeah, you repped like your whole house. So you, you and Sparag were from the same French school set? Did yeah. We went to, uh, we went to Les Lycées Francais together, which was a a French, a a very, very strange experience. That's cool. It was really, it was really a weird place stone was one of the few guys um who like i connected with with like when i went to that school yeah because there wasn't a lot of uh i don't know it was kids from all over the world so it's like there wasn't a lot of kids that kind of knew what was going on with music or like knew the new dances and like Mm -hmm. things like that stone was a great older but we you know you could tell by the stickers on his binder, like what was going on. You know? yeah. Well, well, Stone is from New York as well, so you know, two New Yorkers right. getting along in LA from Beverly Hills. I know, yeah. He's technically, more of a New Yorker than me, but I feel like he didn't live in New York for as long as yeah. I did. So was together. was Stone always like kind of a hard hard ass asshole? Kind of even in high, in in school when you went with him? No, not that I recall. I really? mean, he was always, you know, usually you're not that cool to the kids that are a grade younger than you. Right. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Like, like when he and I were, were bros, it was like I was probably in sixth grade and he was in like seventh grade. If anything, he was like very cool to me. Oh, um, nice. I remember I think he was one of the first uh, dudes I saw with a cross colors. That's fucking nasty. That's disgusting. No, out of French school, <laughs> cross colors and... Yeah, well, I mean, the like the really the coolest dudes in the grade above me was like him and and Chris Clark, um, who's who's a, a a really good rapper who's still in the who's still around, um, who was Stanley Clark's son, and like Chris yeah. and Stone were like it would be recess and they would you know you would you know they would come out with the boombox or whatever it was and they would be doing like listening to whatever song like was at the end of In Living Color that week and like doing the <laughs> dance. 
No, those guys were the fucking crazy. <laughs> like they have all like they had the new Bo Jacksons and some hats I'd never seen. A lot of like African stuff. Oh, wow, <laughs> that's crazy. <laughs> Sounds like a lot of shit was going on back then, man. Um, a lot of shit was going on, and it's funny, you know, like I mean, obviously, you know, the political climate is like really heavy right now, right? And we used to get chastised, me and those dudes, for wearing like fight the power shirts and like fuck the police stuff and like all these things when we were like eleven or twelve years old. And there were times where I was like, "What were we thinking?" And I was like, "Yo, we were way ahead of the curve on all this shit." <laughs> <laughs> Like wow. fucking police and fight the power when we were 11 years old and we were being told to shut up. Wait, in wait, Beverly yeah. Hills, in Beverly Hills, in Beverly Hills, that's right. Wearing so, cross colors. We had a lot going on in Beverly Hills. I mean, alchemists lived around the corner for me. We didn't know we had to, we had shit wow. like really bad when we were kids. That's so crazy. So what were people saying? Like, yo, why are you wearing that shit? Like, it, a lot of a lot of people. I remember back in third base, every like, why are these white boys like uh. Why are they talking about how white people suck and they white kind of shit? Remember that with third base? <laughs> well, when, yeah, of course. Well, I mean, third base was like, you know, when I found out that that was a thing, like after the Beastie Boys, like, because the Beastie Boys were like a whole, you know, they were there, they had started to carve their own path, like after the fake run DMC stuff. But then, like, third base was just like a straight up rap group. And that was amazing to me. I, I was mostly upset by MC Search's ability to have a flat top. <laughs> and I was just like, how? Like, how do I do it? Yeah, like, I, would, like, I, would show, I would show her pictures of Search and be like, how can I do this? His, his shit was always on point. And plus, he had his name in the back. Yeah, yeah. his name in the back. He would say third base back there. He could do yep. everything. Like, he was kind of like, he was almost on like a kid, on like a kid in play level. Yeah, he was. And I was like, that's not it's not fair. <laughs> he had that ill Jufro though, right? Was it? Do you think it was like a lot of product, or it was like an ill Jufro kind of shit? I think it was just an ill Jufro that was so. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, Jufro is hilarious. You never hear like, that? It's just like I think a Search's hair and head. Well, like I mean, I think it's safe to say that Search is a, is a little bit dense in general, right? <laughs> and so i think that that uh, i told you i was gonna talk shit and i think that his, dens- his density probably transpired like into his hair like he's so dense in the brain that his, his hair got mad tight jesus christ like out here we're like that's tight but in new york if they're like yo your shit's mad tight it was like not a good oh okay <laughs> <laughs> he said west coast tight i, I understood that yeah. part yeah, well, West Coast tight is like, dude, it's fucking tight. But then East Coast tight is like, yeah, I said some shit. And he got mad tight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. He got upset. He got upset. <laughs> hey, yo. It's like uptight. It's like an apostrophe tight. <laughs> hey, yo, Mike. So uh, it's kind of uh, an ill coincidence that we were recording with you today because tomorrow is going to be like the anniversary of AIM's passing, right? Uh, is that right? August 28th, August uh, Friday. 28th. Yeah. Uh, rest in peace to AM. Was, I would have, I could have acknowledged that. Um, yeah, so that'll be eleven. That's eleven years. Wow, wow. yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. And uh, I, I definitely want to talk about uh, Banana Split. We have a yeah. lot of questions because you know Banana Split is this legendary party in LA. Um, it seems to be gaining a little bit of notoriety too. I like that. Like it has yeah. this weird kind of like like it, it could be like you know like when we were DJing like nobody was talking about 
fucking like paradise garage and like place and like things like this and mm-hmm, then like yeah. 10 years ago everyone's like yeah man everyone knows like that's the legendary shit i'm like i don't know i, I dj'd in new york for 10 years nobody mentioned it you knew it existed but people didn't talk about it the way exactly they yeah, yeah, yeah we like they're talking about it right now that, or we want to we wanted this or that. And I feel like banana split over like at the time it was kind of like, Oh, you're a part of that clown shit. And then then now years later, like it's all like, like people are really, well, I think cause you're, you're seeing what happened like after that, like it's a little more, you know, Steve Aoki being who he is. And then the legend of AM, which continues to grow, which makes me happy all the time. Like, yeah. I get hit up a lot of times by strangers, like in DMs and emails, or or like even like like if they see me on the street or something, they'll be like, "Oh man, like I just watched the AM documentary, like I saw or like you know like people are like like people are turning eighteen, nineteen, and then like kind of watching that. I guess probably like the way that we would have watched like Beat Street or like what, however we learned about what DJing looks like, you know, mm-hmm. for our generation, which is kind of cool because I'm glad. The making of that movie was a very iffy experience on a lot of levels. So I'm glad that, that it worked out really well and it told the story honestly and that people, especially now, like people want to talk about Banana Split. Like kids are posting pictures and being like, yo, I can't, like, can you imagine what it would have been like to have been here? And I'm like, yeah, finally, they get it. Like, <laughs> this is amazing because I felt that way at the time. I mean, did you, you got, did you, you came through the Banana Split a couple times, right? Crooked and, and, and never? I've never no, been, man. I never it, made it to I've Banana Split. Nah, we never I made know. it, right. I think the one the one time I was about to go in, like I went there late and it was closing and everyone was leaving and everyone was like, "Yeah, where were you?" And that, I was like, "That was a pretty common thing was people could come there after their gigs because in the event that AM had the last set, mm-hmm. no one could tell them to stop. Like it was a very uncommon thing for a Los Angeles club to go past one forty five. Right? Yeah, yeah. That time, um, and it's kind of like a, it was like a thing where like. It was Sunday night, so it was on the low, and like no one there had more power than him because he owned the club. So like if he played mm-hmm. the last set, he would play till like two forty-five sometimes. Wow. And the lights would be on and the bartenders would have their fucking arms crossed and like all this shit. But people would be coming like from their other gigs and walking in and still hanging out, which yeah. was really always the illest. Because then he would start playing hip hop too. Like those were some of the few like occasions of him like just you know the lights come on and you got nothing to lose and you just start flexing on purpose and you just, just like, having fun. Play, <laughs> like, what well, you want to play? Everyone can see me and I'm just gonna like. That's when he would start like really doing his his. I'm way better than anybody. DJ <laughs> so I'm wait, way better than anybody. You guys like Banana Split. You guys had like some of the first LA shows for like Lady Gaga, right? Uh, Wiz Khalifa, yeah. Santi Gold. Lady Gaga was actually one of the first like. Like I feel like payola gigs that we took. <laughs> oh, they paid y'all to have her. Alle- okay. Allegedly, allegedly, allegedly. I mean, I didn't get paid from it, but it was definitely a thing where every week in, to to do the guests, like we just we never wanted it to seem because things could get a little bit hectic. Like the guy who uh, Matt Matt Colin, who was the the promoter and Steve's manager. Um, you know, like he, like everyone had different like favors to do for different people. Like I had DJs I wanted to put on. Matt managed DJs and had people he wanted to put on. AM obviously was like, you know, the the he had like eight hundred bastard DJ children that wanted to play there. <laughs> and then, um, and then Steve had any number of like, you know, 
actors and jerk offs that like couldn't DJ that like you'd have these guys play. <laughs> <laughs> let's have the guy from Malcolm in the Middle DJ or you know, let's have Will I Am play or you know, whatever it was. <laughs> uh, so it's so we decided that there would be a weekly email where like we would say, like, you want to have this person play, and it had to be unanimously agreed. And then if it wasn't, the person kind of got to make their case, and then like it would get shut down. And then sometimes it would get it would be different week to week. Mm. Like, like I would like LMFAO was LMFAO, right. but they were born out of our party. Yeah, and before people knew who they were, um, you know, they were just there every week, and they were giving me a lot of like, "Hey, can we play? Can we play?" And I was like, "Yeah, let's do it." And then it went from one week Steve being like, "No fucking chance," like those guys, no way, man, <laughs> and then. <laughs> The very next week being like, yeah, man, like, definitely, let's have those guys, you know, like, i.e., I don't know, someone told them they were cool. <laughs> well, honestly, do you think they was going to blow up the way they did? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> Look at his face. <laughs> no way, man. But, like, I keep it as a reminder to myself. <laughs> as a reminder to myself, <laughs> I keep this in my studio. Just, just as Any, anything is possible, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yo, that's crazy. Don't say anything, that. That's fucked up. <laughs> it doesn't matter how old you are or how much people tell you don't do it. Just do your shit. Do that shit. I can yeah. honestly say, like, I, I was taught to, like, uh, you know, I was kind of like, like Stretch was my, working for Stretch Armstrong was kind of how I learned how to make really quick decisions about music. Like I would watch him do it all the time. Like people would be like, yo man, check out the new so-and-so. And like in 30 seconds, he would be like, this is dope. Or like, this is garbage. Like get this shit out of here. And I always thought that was really cool. And I thought that meant like, like you had the ear and it's true. Like after a while, like you can kind of tell. But it doesn't mean you're always like it. You could be right about something being trash, but it doesn't mean that the whole world is not going to love it. Right. Yeah. And yeah. Like, and food is my dude. Like that. I mean, food. Red Foo is a legend. Like he's he's a legend in L.A. He's a relevant producer. You know, he produced the original version of Ahmad back in the day. Um, he he produced like I think half that first Black Eyed Peas album and wow way that i was introduced to him was as the man who taught am how to make beats mm, i, mean, I wow. don't know what that means none of us ever heard a beat that am made but like yeah interscope <laughs> <laughs> is still waiting for the album yeah right yeah it was just like you know they got, I don't, but like that was that was their thing was like they had met in the 90s and foo showed him how to use a uh uh, uh mpc and that and he was just around they would play cards together and foo was really really around when we started banana split like he would be hanging out at am's house in the sessions like in the weeks leading up to the first couple banana splits we would hang out at adam's house and just listen to all this music there was so much shit coming out uh like all the ed banger stuff and then there was like everything going on on the holler board and then there was like so many mashups and all the kind of mm -hmm. up tempo different things that, that like the rub was doing and that holotronics was doing right yeah and we wanted to find a way to get it all to live somewhere on its own and that was kind of how the marriage of like am and aoki kind of came about was he was like right but like how are we going to get like hipster girls to come you know like how are we going to get like the girls from cinespace to come to this party mm -hmm. it was like well steve aoki is the man for that so it was like a kind of a, a perfect convergence but the but foo 
Fu was always around, like he would be on the couch and he's a musician. So he would hear that shit and he would, he would never like interrupt or like get in, like in the conversation, but you could tell his like wheels were spinning. Mm -hmm. And then like, he would like put on his headphones and do some stuff. And then kind of by the end of the evening, he would be like, yo, you guys like check this out. And he would play us a beat that he made like in his headphones. And he's like, does this shit sound right? Like the shit that you guys are doing. And honestly, like he would nail it. Like he was making like banging electro beats. Like if you listen to all those early LMFAO beats, like they're kind of, they're bangers and they sound, they're all really um, derived from like the popular big banana split kind of anthems. Like there's always something in them that you're like, oh shit, like that's like a Mastercraft lead or that's like a Daft Punk bass line or like there's always like that's, that's how you make hit records, right? Like you find out like what works from other stuff and you, and you sneak it in mm-hmm. yeah. but to get more specifically to the point uh, <laughs> to see what happened with LMFAO was very interesting because when the party started, he was just there and he was a hip hop dude. Right. So he had like, you know, like jeans weren't like, they weren't like baggy per se, like in 2006, but like hip hop dudes were like, big jeans they were loose fit loose fit (laughs) (laughs) the loose fit bootcut jeans bootcut waist but like a 50 leg you know like like, you had you had bigger you had bigger pants Mm -hmm. than than you did like that was kind of it was really easy to tell like who was there from where and like what their deal was in la because it was like yeah like the skinny jeans people were hipsters and then there was the streetwear people and then there was the hip-hop guys and and AM would bring a, there would be a lot of guys that felt, I think, not comfortable at the party because of that. Because a lot of guys would come to be like, yo, they used to refer to electro and rave and dance music generally, like on Fairfax and from like the Power 106 guys and stuff. They would refer to it as that weirdo. They'd be like, yo, man, y'all play that weirdo over there. Like, what's <laughs> really? Like, yeah. Like, <laughs> they just didn't know what it was called. Cause, you yeah. know, like in the 90s, like, you know, techno was gay as they would say, you know what I mean? Like, Oh, you go, you go to raves. Like that's gay. Or like, you go to this, or like, you know, like it was like, it was, there was a lot of like, you couldn't be like a hip hop guy that did rave stuff or you couldn't be, it was almost, it was like, I was a closeted raver <laughs> and, 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 and electronic <laughs> record collector. Like I used to go on my lunch break working at, at like game records to satellite in New York and buy a bunch of techno records and like hide them shits like so deep in my bag <laughs> you know like it was just like i would get home like i couldn't listen to it. we had turntables in the office i was like no dude i'm just listening yeah. to this yeah, yeah, yeah. shecky didn't want to hear that shit at the time <laughs> was, the was like what is this shecky and i bonded over like he was just like oh like you're in like he caught me after hours in there like smoking weed and listening to daft punk once he's like oh you like this shit like i love this shit and that was actually a, a bonding uh, oh wow <laughs> but um but anyway, there was a lot of there was a lot of uh, disparity in the crews that were in Banana Split. You know, like the hipsters would be on the dance floor going crazy, waiting for Aoki to do his shit, and then you had all the AM fans that were like, "Wait, this guy's on the cover of Us Weekly. Like, why is he in here? Like, sweating and playing like this crazy music I never heard before." And then you had like just random people that were like, "Yo, this shit is free on a Sunday night, and you're giving out free beer." And like, I, I looked. The only the secret was at the door that. Anyone who was wearing a suit or asked if they could buy a table or was trying to grease the doorman to get in would be turned away. Mm-hmm. Like that was just how we, that was how we kept it so that there wasn't like shit bags in there. It was just like, cause every other night of the week, that club was a nightmare. Like I wouldn't set foot in that place cause it was all just, <laughs> you know, like 
bottle service and 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 like I mean unless I was DJing like you just didn't want to be in there. Right. Um yeah. It was like the it was like the not that cute end of that shit. But you, um, it was but little, you that's what you little, you guys brought like a house party vibe, like an LA house yeah, party vibe little, to yeah. Hollywood, right? Pretty much. How do we take it and make it cool? Right. Because when we were listening to the music, it was like we want to find a place to do this party. And and then and 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 Adam was always like, Yeah, then but where could we do it? Where could we do it? And I'm like, yo, dude, you own a nightclub, right? I mean, it's your club. <laughs> <laughs> But I don't own a club. Um, and the and the thing was back then it was a there was a everyone there was a thing in LA that was just you can't do part like you can't do weeklies on Sundays. There was no Sunday weeklies. Like it was just a thing. It's like people don't go out on Sundays. Bolt House that was the only night of the week that Bolt House did not do a night on Sundays or, or one of those guys. Like Monday through Saturday there was something cracking the whole week. Sundays were just like you don't go out. Um, so that was how we got over on that. We we're like, well, if we give away free beer and it's free and people can wear sneakers and t-shirts, mm-hmm. like surely we'll at the least get people in there. Like, I don't know if we'll make money, but like, we'll be cracking. They will mm-hmm. come, right? Free beer. Yeah. Or no entry. <laughs> free beer. That's what you have, that's what you have to put on the fly. It was, it was dope. You guys had, you guys had like forties and shit, right? You guys were like giving out we 20. Had, we had, um, forties was at Aphex. Forties was out okay. of 12. Um, we had a keg of beer that we would put on the dance floor. It was like full keg of Sapporo. Um, that lucky for me would be would come out right at opening because that was also the idea. Was like I was like, cool. Well, whatever we do, can we make it so that people are there? Like when I'm playing at ten o'clock, so like we would the doors would open and then the dude would just come out and put the keg in the middle of the dance floor, and one of the bartenders would just stand there and people would just line up, wow. and then eventually. Like they would get their beer and then stay there and kind of keep dancing because they would get back in the back of the line. So like, so like the line for the beer became kind of the dance floor for the first hour. And then once it got cracking, I mean, I think I like to think we always went through the whole keg, but I think it, I think at a certain point we just started like getting rid of it at like 1045 or whatever. It's like, all right, these motherfuckers have had enough free beer. <laughs> get it out of here. But, it, but that that was important in dudes like Red Fu coming on in in their, like, hoodies and uh, big jeans. Yeah. And he would, you know, they would see that. And, like, I think, you know, people wanted – the hipster girls were looking, like, real cute. So there were <laughs> a lot of, like, hip-hop guys and radio DJs and stuff that were, like, not getting any action at Banana Split because they were, like – not getting looked at because they're just like, oh, like you're just some dude in big pants. Like you're not who I'm trying to hang out with. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, and then Fu was a, he was, he was a, he was a ladies man. I would say like, he really was out. Like when I, around that time, he had a website called redfoo.com, which was like a MySpace that was just for him. It was a dating site that was for like dating him. And he, <laughs> he was the only male allowed on the website. What? What is this? When was this? What? This is like some VH1, like love for Ray J type of shit, but just for Red Fool, apparently. 2006. It was called redfoo.com. And it was a social media site where you could sign up and put your profile and all this stuff. But like Foo was like the Tom of MySpace of it. But like no <laughs> other men were allowed to like be on the side. I've never heard this. This is amazing. This is I crazy. Mean, short-lived endeavor. But if you look at old pictures of like of, of him in the early days of Banana Split, he's always got a, a sweater on that says RedFood.com, and he always has. He's always like wearing like his own branding. And like wow. when that started, he started then like that wasn't working for him. There. And- <laughs> you think <laughs> <laughs> the Benny website did not work? 
Yeah, you're wearing a shirt that just says your name.com, <laughs> like a picture of yourself on it. He uh, So that wasn't working for him. And he, uh, is this thing on? Um, and he was, uh, <laughs> he, was uh, he, started, he started like, he started, I remember him and Sky Blue, his little cousin, they would come every week and they would wear different stuff. Like they were trying, like they were trying out some looks. Wow. And like one, so they showed up one week. I, I, yo, I shit you not. This is some real shit. They showed up in full 90s rave wear. Like, for one second, they're like, wait, like, are these guys ravers? And they came in full, like, Jinkos and, like, orange Caltrans vests and, like, and goggles and, like, a whole kit. And, like, that didn't work. And I kept seeing them kind of try different stuff. And when one week, I'll never forget it, he showed up in, like, the three-quarter length Capri zebra print denims. That, I, that he just wore, I think, for like the next three years straight until he started, <laughs> <laughs> started making them himself. Ultimately, it became like party rock lifestyle wear. Like they would make those zebra. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but he I don't know where he found those or what who made those for him or what kind of like young girls pants those were <laughs> He somehow like just pulled himself into but like that week i was like oh look at foo he's taking home like those super cute girls that are always over there in that corner like that's crazy like him and, and like yo he never took that shit off again wow and started and all those that he was making um while in the beginning days of banana split him and he started rapping to him and writing to him mm -hmm. and the reason and the reason that i keep this party rock lifestyle so close <laughs> work all the time <laughs> is because my infamous words that i said to foo i was i liked it i was i'm pretty sure i was within the first five people to have the i'm in miami bitch <laughs> demo cd i still have it it just says i'm in miami bitch for mike b on a burn cd and i listened to it and he's like what do you think and i was like you gotta bury this like like go <laughs> go to the desert <laughs> Damn, wow play this for like living human beings because they don't just <laughs> kind of torture you know <laughs> i was like this is a nightmare and i remember my first question to him was have you ever been to miami and he's like nah <laughs> and, yeah. that's and then, crazy but like the well, like I said, the like the the way the clicks were like chopped up and banana split. It wasn't like over the years it became like a unified scene. But in the beginning, mm -hmm. when everyone's like, "Why are we here?" and like, "What is like, what are we supposed to do?" There was a lot of people that weren't fully comfortable there. You know what I mean? Like, will I am? And it was more. It was basically like he was getting kind of the cold shoulder from a lot of people mm -hmm. until the week the BEP showed up. And Will was like, yo, that's my man, Red Foo. And he brought like him and Sky over to their table. That's literally like the week Steve decided that that Foo was dope and that he like really fucked with LMFAO was because he saw that Will was like, he's like, no, you don't understand. This guy produced half our first album. Like, he's the man. Like, whatever he's doing, like, he's dope. Because, you know, that's another in many ways, like that's you know, they're a very they're very similar uh, <laughs> yeah. of guys that they love to they know they love to party and they're creative geniuses mm -hmm. and it doesn't always manifest in a way that i would necessarily want to hear right. but like i respect you know the work that those guys do mm -hmm. uh, i mean like black eyed peas like that's the ultimate of like where you can kind of take that kind of music but also like it's the, it's the ultimate you know turds of of 
<laughs> but it, they, they just make really digestible music for yeah. the masses, it's right? It's digestible. Just- I mean, and, and that was, and those guys being there, like that, I mean, that first year of Banana Split, audio wise, is like fully what informed that whole album. That I don't remember what it was called, but the one that had Tonight's Gonna Be a Good Night on it, mm-hmm. like that whole dance music, that first time where they really like went full in on like synths and, and, mm-hmm and four four kicks and like making like what would become what would what is like still on the radio now basically which is like dance rap i don't know what was that the, was that the album that had i got a feeling i was just like what did we do like we just wanted to like have a cool underground party and now like power 106 plays house music in the middle of the afternoon that's crazy <laughs> it was a really crazy time but it was a very weird time but that was kind of like the, the and that's how those that record happened was the cosign of like you would have guys like 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 Big Sife, mm-hmm. you know, who's man mm-hmm. who was very interested in like seeing what was going on in music, and he would come there every week. Yeah. And he's not like a dance floor guy, and he's not there like you know picking up chicks and whatever. He was there to like hear the music. That he was like, "What's going on with this?" Yeah. And then you would have guys like Fu who would bring when he brought him the demo. When you don't when you don't spend your whole life like being a raver and like having a secret electronic music collection and having like really informed taste about dance music. Like, and you just hear some shit that has a baseline and a synth and a four, four kick. You're like, yeah, it sounds good enough to me. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. is this something cool? Like, is this, Oh, this is like a cool exclusive, like weirdo record that I could play at drive time on power one Oh six. And they started like playing it in the mix. And I guess Pitbull was in LA and heard it and, realized there was a song about Miami and then did his verse on it and brought it back. And then nine months, cut to nine months later, I was on the same plane with Fu and his whole squad and Ian Fletcher, who, who, who managed them, who was AM's boy, who was also there. Like, it was just like a crazy convergence of like, if, ad, if this party hadn't have been going on, like none of these people would have been in this room together. Right. And then next thing you know, we're all flying to WMC and like these guys are in first class. And it was it was legitimately Foo's very first trip to Miami. Like and I and I was, <laughs> and I was on the plane with him. And uh, and it was crazy because literally he got off the plane and people are screaming at him in the airport, like, I'm in Miami, bitch. And there's like stickers everywhere, and then we get to South Beach and there's bootleg. I'm in Miami, bitch, T-shirts everywhere. And then, like, the label, they had just gotten signed and they paid for, like, the the plane. You know, they had the planes with the signs that fly up and down the beach. Yeah. They had, yeah. Like, mm-hmm. LMFAO, live at Nikki Beach, you know, <laughs> tomorrow. Like, all like, and that was his, he was literally, like, for a man who had never been to Miami, bitch, like, that was the most... Miami anyone could be bitch you know what I mean like that like (laughs) that's so crazy to me like I always think like I feel like it's an inspirational story like as much sound like like, it my my opinions uh about their music being on you know relatively unchanged it's crazy to me that they I mean they have I mean they had like eight hits I mean you guys were playing in in real Vegas clubs like oh yeah yeah. oh yeah yeah, oh yeah those records right i mean like those the first one was probably that clumsy remix that he came out with which one was that the the one with fergie remember she had the song clumsy yeah yeah, with the like yeah yeah he did that remix that was like like 125 bpm yeah and that was him 
trying to kind of do the like Motown, like everyone was playing the Motown Baltimore records. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so his, the way that he did that Fergie remix was kind of his version of like the Mr. Postman or like the respect remix. Like he found that sample. like, Oh man, I forgot about that. I had to play that shit too. And when we were were, crooked and Nev and I, we were all signed. What was, uh, we were all uh, on, uh, Undisputed. Undisputed. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I used to go down and play at Stingery in San Diego. I had the special version. I used to have to play uh, I'm in Diego, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> and like it really was like it was a constant reminder because it was it was crazy. It was like it's how my mother must feel about like my success as a DJ. You know, you're like, <laughs> well, I'm no. proud that he's successful. But like, I wish it hadn't been this way. <laughs> or just, she probably just doesn't understand. It's like, like, how did this happen? Like, it's yeah, my I didn't, mom just like, I don't get any of this. Like, I'm yeah. glad you did well, but like, this seems crazy. I I completely <laughs> forgot that we were on. Uh, we were all signed to the same management at the time. Me too, man. Which yeah. is undisputed. Yeah, we were on the same management crew. They made you as much money as they made me, which was not a lot. It's easy to forget. <laughs> <laughs> so I think the best thing that came from it was the relationship. Like I, pro- I think that's really how I officially yeah, met yeah. you. And yeah, yeah, that's how we kind of all clicked. We were like, we were like a crew. Exactly. Post. Like post body, I used to I played in Vegas a couple times, like pre body English, mm-hmm. um, but like post body English era, um, like that, like undocumented or undisputed was like the only the only gigs I, I had really in uh, in Vegas and being out there and like seeing what you guys did and, and I'm try, trying to understand that that life as much as I could. Yeah, that was um that was a that was an ill time because I feel like we had like a light in the Bellagio, right? Uh, yeah. was one of the first bottle service clubs and they booked Stevie Oki for the first time in like 2006 maybe and then was he still on the or no he had gotten in Serato I think it was yeah it was definitely Serato but I, I assure you seeing Steve Aoki play on vinyl was really something <laughs> <laughs> I've heard stories but by that time he was he sounded he sounded you know pretty good Nice. But I was—I always thought it was weird because I would meet certain people in LA and they didn't know like house. They didn't know certain house. They didn't know yes. like David Guetta. They didn't know, you know, some of the Bob Sinclairs and all of that shit that was popping at then. Yeah. And then so I would play something. He'd be like, "What is that? What is that?" And then in my head, I kind of always thought that Baltimore Club was one of the first um, entry level sounds that that introduced some LA people to like something very close to house does that make sense thousand percent you're 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 absolutely right yeah um it was like it it it, i mean i can trace that as someone who is into both things like i i really got to see like when everything converged right Mm -hmm. i've I've known about baltimore club since you know probably the late 90s and then i mean even like frank ski whores in this house is technically a baltimore club record that's like one of the first ones actually that's like that's what like 1990 but like i mean i didn't know that was baltimore club but i was aware of that of those kind of like breaks records and things like that Mm -hmm. and diplo went really heavy on that stuff with hollertronics which then kind of transferred to mark ronson playing the kw griff Aretha Franklin respect in his essential mix mm-hmm. in like oh five or something like that. Big record, big record, yeah, huge record. Yeah. But also like when that hit, like I remember hearing 
him play that in his sets at the time and being like, yo, that's fucking crazy. But there wouldn't be another record like that that followed it. Like mm-hmm. he would follow it up with something like he wouldn't, you wouldn't play like a half hour of Baltimore club, but you would play like certain Baltimore club. You'd be like, you'd go into that and then you go into like planet rock or some shit. <laughs> like you, you would like, you'd go around into that area. You know what I'm saying? But then in classic form, like when AM got his hands on those records he got his hands on like five or six hot baltimore club remixes and of course like the way he played them and where he played them made it seem like like it came out of nowhere like it was some new Mm -hmm. shit that he just invented i remember being at a dinner at bossa nova with stone and and other people and him saying like yeah you know like anyone who's playing fucking baltimore club right now is just biting am and i was like well, no, not, you know what I mean? Like, like, you know, and I know, like, he's not from Baltimore and like, he's <laughs> there's guys who have been doing this for a really long time. And also like people in LA in, in bottle clubs, like didn't know about Hollertronics or like what Diplo was doing at the time, which is kind of like what Steve did. Like it's what, like what you say about Steve is really funny because what we wanted to do with banana split was bring all this cool underground music like Baltimore club and like what like Dave Taylor uh, also known as switch was doing or like what the headbanger guys were doing and try to bring it to show people that there was exciting stuff going on. Cause there was no underground music in Hollywood. Like mm-hmm. there was raves and then there was like Hollywood clubs and there was like really not a lot in between. And uh, and raves weren't playing this new shit. Like they weren't playing this like hard electro stuff. They were playing like you know just ten hours of straight up house or trance or whatever. So we we wanted to do this kind of hollertronics mashup shit. And the funny thing about Steve getting into that stuff was like after he started going to Vegas, and especially after the first time he came back from Ibiza. I'll never forget this shit. He came back from Ibiza in like 07 and was like, yo, man, like I got some real shit to play you. Like what's really going on in Europe, like the real underground, real shit. He's like these dudes laid back, Luke, Steve <laughs> Angelo, uh, David Guetta, Fetty Legrand. Like, he's yeah. like, you don't know about this shit, bro. Like, this is the real underground. I'm like, those guys are actually everything we're fighting against. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, those guys are like that's european pop music dude. Yeah. i'm like yeah, I, I know and, and i like all that stuff, yeah. you know what i mean i love all that stuff i love crossover dance records i'm like but that's not what we're doing here but that became what he was doing mm-hmm. that's when i mean it's just like you know if you watch the wu-tang documentary if you watch like anything like there's always a point where everyone has the same goal and then like some time goes by and then everyone's like, well, I'm here to do this. Right. Right. So thing where it was just like, I'm here to play like the most underground newest shit I could find that no one's ever heard. Steve was there to play like the most banging anthems mm-hmm. that he could find. Like he wanted to play like the love is gone and like, and like records like that. And then, um, then AM was always just doing AM. Right, like whatever. Here's 112 songs that I like right now, all mixed into one. (laughs) (laughs) I I remember that early 2000s time. I and never, I think you remember, is like when house and hip hop started just converging. Obviously, it was like hip hop and rock in the late 90s and the 2000s when like Bob Sinclair, Love Generation, World, what is it, World Hold On? Yeah. World Hold On, yeah. I mean, you started hearing those records on Hot 97, like Funkmaster Flex and DJ Enough were playing those records. 
And they're like, yep. yo, I love this shit. I don't care what y'all say. I'm playing this shit. Well, there was always, that's one of the things I loved about those six hour New York nights. Like when mm-hmm. I was playing in New York was that there was always that half hour of house. And like yeah. every year or two, one song would get added to that half hour. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's man. true. Yeah. yeah. Like, yep. I, I moved to like 97 and like when I would go see like Stretch or Riz or any of those guys play like a an urban night as it was called like you would have you know you would have an hour of R&B remixes in the beginning and then you would start playing the hits and then you would have like the old school set mm-hmm. and then you would have like 20 minutes of reggae and then you go back to the hits and then somewhere around like 2:30 or 3 it would just be like some way into whatever. Mm-hmm. And then it was like, follow me, show me love. Uh, like I'll be your friend, the percolator. Yeah. Uh, break for maybe, love, all that shit. Yeah. Plastic dreams, break for love yeah. for sure. Um, <laughs> depending on, 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 on the hue of the crowd, like maybe even like, uh, like bizarre ink or like, like, the, you know, there was like a certain amount of stuff you could play. And like, in 98, I saw, like, the music sounds better with you. Got like I was, I was about to say that, yeah. Um, that ben Heldin, oh, his shit. And then a year later, it was, like, Mojo Lady was right. added. Uh-huh. <laughs> there was, like, like, every year, there was, like, one thing that, like, made, like, the Beat Nuts, like, house music. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. That's crazy. That was, that's so way- accurate. That's so accurate. Like, that's... Yo, you're a fucking New Yorker, man. The way you're breaking this whole shit down, it's I crazy. Know, yeah, man. <laughs> you were you were in New York. The way I bonded when I met Juju, the way that we bonded was actually over. It was over the release of Kings of Tomorrow. Finally, which oh, like, so good. That was another big song. Before I left New York, that came out at like the end of 2002 or like early 2003. I was just about to leave, and I was talking to Juju, and he's like, "Man, like it came on," and he's like. He's like, this is that shit. He's like, this. Like, it was just anything that made you feel like that old time when house was, in fact, like an exciting new black music. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. listen to like, like you know, Special Ed's first album, Jungle Brothers, particularly like Queen Latifah. Like, everyone always had like the one house. house yeah. Yeah. You know, it's like what ultimately <laughs> like in the nineties or like in the late nineties, like everyone would have like that one, like really soft record that you would take off your cassette version, like mm-hmm. Noriega, like I love my life or like things like that. There, like, <laughs> there was just one song that just didn't fit with all the like rape and murder and like the rest of the shit. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, well, that's so funny. Cause even the NWA went through that where they had the uh, record yeah. on the first straight out of Compton. It was like a weird EDM record towards the end. And I was like, what is this? Like, <laughs> called something because yeah. like at, at a certain point it was like all right we killed all the cops we sold all the drugs <laughs> we killed all the cops is funny we killed all the cops we sold all the drugs we drank all the eight ball and like you know all of these suckers and busters are dead and like now we can finally dance <laughs> and then and then de la soul like mocked all that shit right i was about to say that yeah and then de la and then de la soul is dead de la soul is dead they came out with uh they just mocked like that that like uh that standard house song that every rapper put out they would just be like making fun of that shit and i remember yeah. that yeah but to be fair there was also like nine david morales remixes of saturday right right <laughs> there's a bunch of them yeah <laughs> Yo, so I, I want to talk about you in New York. 
I'm itching okay. to talk about New York, New York, but I'm I want to hear about this as well. I I want to talk about a little. I want to go back to Banana Split for a little bit. Stop smiling. I want to I want to talk about Banana Split just because I want to break down exactly what were the roles when you AM and Stevie Oki founded that shit. Um, like who? What? What role did each person play? Do you know what, what I mean? Um, keeping it as a hundred as I can recall. Yes. Chronologically, um, my memory is good, but I like I keep doing shit to like fuck it up. So like I like to think I have all of these facts right, and I hope I do. Okay. I don't want to put words in anyone's mouth. What were the roles and how did it come to be? It was like this: AM, like myself, was like a secret raver. Like he also like in the nineties had gone to a lot of raves and had like a crazy collection of old rave mixtapes and stuff. And when that music in 2005 started coming out, um, like switch a bit patchy and justice and Uffy and mastercraft, he was like, I want a place. He was, well, he was excited by the music. Mm -hmm. And one night in the wake of his kind of breaking up with Nicole Richie and becoming this kind of tabloid, famous DJ guy, uh, we went to Cinespace to check out Aoki, who was also, do- he, Aoki was also hosting Saturdays at LAX. It was a night called the uh, Hot Lava Saturdays. And it was Steve Aoki and Sam Spiegel, also known as Squeaky Clean, also known as NASA. Um, and they were doing, it was a cool, for a Saturday at LAX, like it was as cool as it was going to be. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So um, he was doing that. And I think when AM showed up to to Steve's parties in his Lacoste with his faux hawk and like with his diamonds, like 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 girls were like it was either like they didn't really know who he was or like they didn't care that he was there, which I don't think he loved because um, he, he was a man who enjoyed you know attention from all angles. Like, I like, like I like how the inspiration for a lot of great shit is pussy. In the end, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Or like, I feel like in his case, it's more just like it's just you want people to give a shit, you know, like yeah. And and I think he he want and we all knew and I think he knew as someone who grew up the way he did and had the experience he had when he was doing that kind of us weekly life, like he knew that this like wasn't really what he was meant for. And so me and him were kind of talking about about all this stuff and all this music. And for better or worse, as I recall it, he said the words to me, that guy, Steve Aoki, is he all right? And I'm like, yeah, man, he's cool as fuck. Because he was. Like, that was my dude. He was doing cool parties. He was playing forward-thinking music. Him and Frankie Chan had had Tuesdays at Cinespace, which was them both playing vinyl. Yeah. Which neither of them ever had any business doing, but that was just how you played music <laughs> back then. Um, and so it was a, it was always a, a sonic nightmare listening to it go from song to song, but they would play like peaches and block party and, and like the killers and like all that kind of like shit that was coming out in Oh four Oh five, uh, the rapture and things like that. And that was kind of like the precursor to what we did at banana split was that kind of LCD sound system and, and stuff like that. Like the rock, like, like punk disco, indie disco, whatever they were calling it. Um, and he said to me, he's like, is Steve Aoki a cool dude? And I'm like, yeah, he's a cool dude. And then that, and then he kind of reached out to Matt. And then that was the beginning of Banana Split, which was a party that I had helped conceptualize with AM, but that I was very quickly being cut out of. Wow. Um, 
by uh, by like by Matt Colin and Steve and like these guys that I had actually co-signed, who to this day are guys that are my friends, and I have nothing bad to say about it, but they are what you call smart businessmen, mm-hmm. unlike myself, and they know that you know having like a guy that really gives a shit about music and has really strong opinions like really doesn't help anyone in Hollywood. Um, and like so, it, I kind of I saw it happening, and then AM sent me this this like uh whatever it was called when you could like catalog your like aol instant messenger conversations Mm -hmm. and he showed me this thing he's like yo we're coming up with a with a title and i swear to god there was like 12 motherfuckers on that fucking chat and i'm like yo like like you guys sat here and talked about names for this party for like two hours with like and the cobra snake is involved like i've never even met that guy Mm -hmm. and you've got like who are these names like i don't even know who they are and he's like yeah those are steve's boys and these are these are i'm just like I, I saw what was happening. Like I saw that like my vision for this kind of cool, exciting new party was going to be, you know, turned into like a way to market whatever, whatever. Yeah. Whatever, whatever, whoever's agenda at the time may have been. Mm-hmm. Like I could talk more shit, but I've talked enough shit already. Um, <laughs> anyway, the point was I called Ann. I, I, I called him straight up. I was like, no more fucking like AOL chat and not responding. I'm like, what's really good. Like, am I going to play at this party or what? Yeah, and he's like, well, what do you mean? And I'm like, well, you know, we kind of came up with this idea, <laughs> and then like you're like, yo, what's up with Steve? Should we get him involved? And I'm like, yeah. And then now you guys are just kind of like having like you named the party without me. I had nothing to do with that. Mm-hmm. I still have the chat. It's up on uh, djamlives.com. I sent it to Kevin for a, a conversation mm-hmm. we had recently about this. Um, we did not get into this kind of detail. <laughs> yeah, shout to Kevin Scott, by the way. Yeah, shout out to big shout out to Kevin Scott yeah. for. We're literally keeping AM alive, which yep. is a beautiful thing. Uh, I really love going on Instagram and seeing those pictures and reading those articles. As and as and as much as I'll hit him up in the DMs to be like, "Yo, bro, that's not even how it went down." Like, <laughs> <laughs> he's the man, and he's killing it. Um, a long story, slightly longer. Basically, I called him, and I was at a point where I was getting ready to quit DJing. Right. So it was '06. I was wifed up. Um, I was producing a reality show. I was making good money. And like, but the deal with the girl was kind of like, if all goes well, I'll quit DJing and we'll like buy a house and get married and have a child. And so what I said to AM and he's like, well, yo, like, how do you like, you know, it's already me and Steve, like, and we're going to have guests. Like, how do you even like, how do you want to do it? Like, mm-hmm. basically, like it was put to me, like, you're not going to play primetime, like ever. He's like, so what? <laughs> Like, why are we even talking about kind of, you know? And I was like, I was like, okay, counterpoint. Which one of you motherfuckers is going to be there at 10 o'clock every week? <laughs> right. You know, like, neither of those guys were guys that showed up when doors opened. Mm-hmm. Like, like Aoki was mostly a promoter who was, you know, doing concert and a socialite. And then AM was definitely not a show up at 10 o'clock guy. Right. And so he was probably going to have just different people come in and open every week. And so I said to him, there's, there's been two part, there's essentially two parties in the history of my career where I would like not take no for an answer. And I was like, you guys are going to let me play. And that was banana split and the do over. And so this was (laughs) the very first case was banana split. And I was just like, look, man, I will be there every week at 10 o'clock. I was like, I'll help handle promotion. I'll handle my space stuff, whatever we got to do. I was like, I don't even want any money. I just don't, no one can tell me what to play. Cause remember like the idea that we had together 
a year ago was that we're going to play this new exciting music that needs the platform. Right. So like, don't let's not let that get twisted and get lost. And like, I just, I was like, I don't care if no one's there. Like all I've done my whole career that I'm about to end is play music for other people. I want to know the feeling of playing music for myself and playing new, exciting dance music. It's all I really want to do. At the least I can record the sets. It was the beginning of blog times. I was like, and people can listen to them at home. You know, right. it was kind of the beginning of, of being able to like, you know, if you missed my set, you could still live it a little bit. And so, and that's how the roles were basically designed was that I was to be there every week at 10 o'clock and make sure that the sound was all good and that the DJ booth was ready to go. And that, you know, there weren't any weirdos hanging out in the booth for when AM got there. Or there wasn't anyone that Steve didn't like near, like, it was just like, I was, I was the opener, mm-hmm. which I, which I was, which I was cool with, you know, like, like Steve was very quickly moving up pay grades and AM was the, you know, the God and like, you know, not, a lot of us wouldn't have been where we were at that time without him. Like even then, like I, he, when I moved to LA from New York, he did everything for me and he didn't have to do shit. So like, I was happy to like, I, I wouldn't open for anybody at that time, but I would open for him. In my mind, I was not opening for Steve Aoki, although oftentimes Steve Aoki <laughs> directly after me, yeah, after I had played the first set. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Would would you say of the th- of the three of y'all, did you have your finger on the pulse of the music a little bit more than all uh, the other two, than AM and Steve? Yes, because I had more time and had been doing it since I was fifteen. Right, like, I had been going to dance music record stores two or three times a week, spending you know twelve ninety nine per record for imports and like and had been going to raves and doing all this stuff and frankly getting laid a lot less than both of those guys <laughs> and especially at that time i was living with a girl and and so i was just at home it was the beginning of blogs i would just stay up you know i would wait she would wake up at six o'clock to go to work you know what that is that's like when you get the bed to yourself so if i could just stay up till four or five i could like really live so like I would sit there and just download music all night, all night, all night, all night. So like I really like I would say that I could I could say unequivocally yes I knew what was up. And again, when it came to Steve, you're talking about someone who went to Europe and heard David Guetta and came back and right. was like, "Yo, I got that underground heat." So you're like, you know, say what you will about the man, he's not like some kind of you know musical uh-huh. uh, Bengali. <laughs> but he but but the thing is, is he's a front man. He's I mean. More than a front man, right? But he is very much. Yeah. He is a he's a front man in the in the way that like Brett Michaels is a front man. Like mm-hmm. there's some amount of talent there, but it's mostly about presence and right. desire. To, um, so I would say that those that actually the easy now that you say it like that, that's the easiest way to define our roles. We were all there for different reasons. Naoki mm-hmm. was there to become famous. Am was there to show us that he's was still cool and i was there to play new underground dance music right and i think that that combination led to kind of a perfect night Mm because you could get early have free beer hear some wild out shit then aoki would get on and do his crazy dances and be like Lindsay lohan come here let's take a picture while i dj and scream and jump up and down right that's what brought a lot of attention from the globally to what we were doing because you could go it was also the first time that you could not go to a party and wake up and look at the Cobra Snake or Bronx or whoever, and you could 
be like, oh, this is what I missed last night. I got to go next week. Or you made sure you went and acted as wild as possible because you needed to be in one of those pictures because that's what was going to make you famous that week was like looking good on Cobra's thing. AM really like he really uh, I mean, he was kind of sucked into the fame a little bit like he he loved the fame and he loved like kind of tapping into the Hollywood network a little. He loved it, but not as much as he loved music and DJ. Right. Which can be said, I can say that I think with authority because of the amount of times that I'm like, you're not going to have sex with that person. You want to go and get cheeseburgers and trade music? Like, really? Like, this girl's been sitting here for an hour. It's the most beautiful person I've ever seen. (laughs) 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 Like, really? Like, and it's and th- and I'm talking like post fame, you know. What I mean, like that shit made sense. Like like when he was like fat, and angry. Yeah. But when he was like you know beautiful and famous, like that was crazy. But like he he still because he because he kind of knew it was there and he loved it. Like I think he liked knowing that it was on the table mm-hmm. and he liked that he could walk into a restaurant and that people knew who he was. But mm-hmm. also having had the experience of of being a fat crackhead for a lot of his life, he also knew that like that wasn't all there was and right. that he the way that he i mean obviously it comes across in the way he plays like you can't play music the way he plays unless you really care about music and he wasn't some kind of prodigy like he was like he wasn't like a like an a track who just like touches a turntable for the first time and is better than anyone in the world mm-hmm. and yeah. then and like the rest of your life is kind of dictated by that like like adam worked so hard to get pause his fingers to do what they did and like and he uh, and and like and it showed, and I don't think he ever forgot that. And I think that that was the reason that when I called him and I was like, "You motherfuckers are really about to start this party without me?" Yeah. And he was like, "Yeah, right." I mean, and he's like, "Because what do you, and what can you say?" Like, I'm like, "Yo, I'm gonna DJ for free, bro, and I'll be there every week at ten. Like, you're really gonna you gonna say no? <laughs> like, I kind of knew I had him dead to rights." That's crazy. Uh, that so that's what I was kind of asking is that you know when he was talking with Steve. When you co-signed Steve and they started talking about the party and then you felt kind of ousted a little bit or you weren't as uh, involved at that time, was it the Hollywood connects and all of this Yeah, thing that was sucking AM in a little? Yeah, well, there was a whole there was a lot of stuff going on. There was there was there was LV, you know, who who was the who was AM's manager and his partner in Dexstar. LV, yeah. And then you had Matt, Matt Colin, who managed Steve. Who and, was not a partner in Dexstar yet at that point, but and he was been, like the editor of like BPM magazine or some shit, right? Well, he worked. He was the head of marketing for BPM. Yeah, and um, and he was kind. He was the one that brought like when I say that like Lady Gaga was like the first payola gig we had. Like that was the <laughs> first time like that there was just a, like look like this is who's playing this week and we're not voting on it, <laughs> and like this is what's happening. Which is funny because if you look at it, if you look at the flyer for that night. Steve and AM weren't even there. It's me, Cobra Crames, and Lady Gaga. Wow. I don't know if you guys know who Cobra Crames is, but he's like a very oh. deep underground New York, like like uh, Brooklyn DJ who plays like really wild shit. Um, who's the man? But it's crazy to think that that was like one of her first LA gigs. It's like with me and this guy. But Matt, but it was yeah, it was like no one had no one had anything to gain for their career by having me there other than me. Mm-hmm. So like I think one of the reasons that AM asked me, "Yo, is this guy Steve cool?" is because Matt Colin was in his ear a lot, like, "Yo, you and Steve, you and Steve, you know, like Steve does Saturdays at LAX. You guys should do something together. You guys should DJ together." Like he knew 
that a co-sign from AM was worth more than anything money could buy, like right. in the DJ at that time. Well, it definitely outside of LA, it we're, it it solidified. We're fucking good for all, for most of for all of us. Yeah, yeah, I mean, like outside of LA, it, the banana split and the AM party, you know, with Steve kind of like solidified Steve as an actual DJ. You know, like you're like, wow, he's. It was very very important for him to have that because it yeah. was, you know, it was like a classic thing. Like there, there's any number. I mean, you guys work in that world. There's any number. It's like I said earlier, like he was the one that he didn't know the difference between a good DJ and a bad DJ and underground. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. yeah, he loved Mastercraft when we started the party, but then a year later it turned out he couldn't tell the difference between Mastercraft and David Guetta, <laughs> you, you know? And like in the same way that like, he didn't know the difference between a good DJ or a bad DJ. He knew whether or not it was something that people liked and might help make him famous for the same reason that he would get super amped when Frankie Muniz would show up to banana split. And I would be like, Oh, there goes the neighborhood. <laughs> Frankie Muniz is crazy. <laughs> yes. So wait, you never got paid for opening. And Matt Colin would run into the booth and tell us who was there. You know what I mean? So like, if he came up and was like, yeah, man, you know, like Zombie Nation is here. I was like, oh, that's dope. And then when he would run in and be like, yeah, you know, Frankie Muniz is here. Like, why are you telling me that? <laughs> Knock him in the middle. Wait, <laughs> wait, wait. So, so, so was big at the time. So, so was big. Exactly. I'm like, how does that help, help our underground dance music agenda? <laughs> this is a detriment. Yeah, it's crazy because Mike B reacts to shit that every like kind of dj reacts to right like we don't really care about actors and all of that shit in the end you know and i feel like guys right yeah yeah. we like i don't care about celebrities if anything i'm like all right what do they want now like why are you telling me what do they want you know they obviously want something and you want us to play something for them or something like that you know but I, i can only imagine the shit you guys as vegas residents have had to hear i mean in the short lived time that dre's was in LA and I was a resident. Oh man. I mean like I think my favorite one I ever heard was Jean-Claude Van Damme is here and he wants to pop bottles to trance. <laughs> like, That's incredible. That's a really incredible statement. Literally my response to the VIP host was is that a question? Like is there a question mark at the end of that? Like or because that to me is just a sentence. Yeah. I like it's one of the coolest sentences I've ever heard. But there's definitely like nothing i can do to put like if you're looking for a response from me to that other than that's really neat that you said that uh, <laughs> like, there's nothing i can do for that man right now. i really hate it i hated like uh all the like the what was it like the oc reality shows and then all of these like reality oh, like uh the hills and yeah all those shows yeah all that shit and then they would come host parties in vegas and i was just like what the fuck is like what is like, this so much more money than we were <laughs> it was oh, a just, lot more <laughs> I used to host those parties like it was like they were really like like they were getting like 50 grand to like do walkthroughs and like Fucking, i hated that yeah. i hated that whole era of like pete wentz djing with ipods at like in a in a 1500 capacity nightclub that, that, is that era over can i come back out of the house <laughs> i don't know in the beginning of quarantine i feel like a lot, a lot of that was still going on it's just that they were doing it for free now um, <laughs> well, well, I want to talk. So you never got paid from Banana everywhere for free, right? Like, oh, the guy from Arcade Fire is here. He's gonna fucking DJ. Whatever, let's go. So wait, you never got paid from Banana Split for opening? I ultimately did. 
it was like it came down it, it came down one day in the email because like the club was making money and there was definitely like you know ma like matt would come to the booth with some amount of cash usually at the end of the night and like put a little something in steve's pocket put a little something in am's pocket put a little something in his own pocket and i would be like i got pockets too dog like what's good you know yeah yeah and then and then especially about a year into it when those dudes started like really being on tour you know like because there was started being nights where i was like holding it down yeah yeah I and mean, i would play from 11 to or i would play from 10 to 12 and then we'd have a guest from 12 to 1 and then i'd close it out mm -hmm. and it just started becoming a and it was like i never asked because like I had already said like I'm gonna do this for free, so I was I knew I should be getting money, but I never asked. And and Am being the man that he is, just one week in the email was you know by the way so and so is playing on this day, and like we need to tell that security guard to like stop touching people's butts, and like um, by the way like we need to give Mike B like 500 bucks every week. He's been holding it down for a year. Like, so you didn't get paid till a year in? About a year in. Yeah. Wow. Can we uh, can we have all the the youth listen to that? <laughs> like that <laughs> is dedication and sacrifice no, and love. But that was also after many years of being that fucking guy. Like DJing was not a unified front the way it is now. You know what I mean? Like I think especially in the wake of Banana Split and all that, we all realized that being friends with each other and not hating on other DJs. And maybe playing and sharing nights was like a good thing for everybody, right? Because definitely yeah. came from the era of like I only have six hours, dude. So like, <laughs> you know, you can't come and play a half hour with me. Like, <laughs> I have my whole shit. So like ten to four is spoken for. Like I know exactly what I'm gonna doing. You might could play one song and fuck up my whole night with yeah. your shit. <laughs> See, I, I think the opposite. I think there was a unit unity in the early two thousands or in the in the in the two thousands. Because like I remember having homies. Huh? I was the quickest one to hate on like because promoters would be like, "Yeah, yo, we want to have you know Green Lantern come in, or we want to have DJ Muggs come in, or he's gonna, he's going to come in and play hours. It's a good look for the party." And I was like, like "I'm not a fucking opening DJ, bro." <laughs> <laughs> you know like i don't I, and you're not giving me less money because i'm playing less like it was just always like it was all you know it was also just repetition of things when you're when you're 20 years old and you're playing in nightclubs mm -hmm. you don't know shit but you see what like the older heads that are you know a few grades above you are saying to promoters and then you start saying that right shit. right right but, you know I, hung, I i opened for a lot of like angry crazy motherfuckers and i would hear them say a lot of angry crazy shit and i was like all right that's how you get your money yeah you'd be like fuck you i'm the best i'm the man you need to pay me more so like i grew up and started saying that shit to people see i, I saw that shit and i'm sure never saw that and i was like i never want to be like that i was like yo i don't want to mm -hmm. be that dude <laughs> a long time to learn that it wasn't that guy i mean even when I was playing in New York, I mean, here's a smooth transition into the New York years for you. Yeah. Like when I was leaving there, I had been playing the basement of Cheetahs for about three years. And there was literally dudes that were coming up to me like, Yo, so when are you moving to L.A.? Like, who's playing to take your spot? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I haven't seen this dude in years. Eric LePoe. Eric LePoe, yeah. Oh! <laughs> I'll never forget. I ran into him. I ran into him at A1. And wow. He's like, how you doing? I was like, I'm good. He's like, he's like, look, man, you know, like, 
the promoters at Cheetah have been telling me that like you're gonna move back to LA and I can have the basement for like a month. Like, and you're still like you're here record shopping. Like, are you leaving? You're like, what? Wow, the- man. <laughs> <laughs> also, there wasn't that many gigs. You know, like there was there was maybe you know twenty people that could do what we did, and then there was maybe ten places you could do it. So. Mm-hmm. Eric Lepoe, shout out to Eric Lepoe though. I mean, he was he was nasty though. He's a, he's a listener of the, of the podcast, by the way. Shout out yeah. to Eric Lepoe. Shout out to Eric Lepoe. Yo, Eric Lepoe is ill, honestly. Yeah, he was he's nasty. I, mean, I haven't heard him. I haven't heard him DJ in fifteen years, but I used. To, I mean, I used to love him. Yeah, I mean, me neither. It's been a while since I heard him. Yeah. But. Yeah. All right, so let, let's get it. I want to get into New York. You're a New Yorker to me, right? So right. hold on, hold on. I got a question, Kirk, about uh, before we leave Banana Split. Yeah. Uh, ultimately, uh, Mike, when AM passed. The last banana split was in November of that year, which was eleven years ago. Yes. Um, what? Why didn't? Why did it just because of his death? You guys stopped it, or what was it? The the ultimately was well, like I said, everything. Uh, everything that had to do with what went on at Banana Split. Once, once I had <laughs> let those motherfuckers know <laughs> that they couldn't be having chats without me, was a unanimous decision between the four of us. And um, it was as simple as after a few days went by and it was like Sunday. It was like, we're obviously not opening that first Sunday. And then I think that like Monday came about. And I think I want to say it was Matt who said it. And he was just like, so like, we're just like, this is just, we don't do this anymore. Right. And Steve and I both agreed that, yeah, like this is like, we just, you don't like, this is how this ends. Like none of us wanted it to be over. Mm hmm. And I definitely, I remember Steve and I crying together and having like a very real moment and kind of having hindsight on the party. I mean, it had only been, you know, we had done the last one maybe two weeks ago, but also Steve hadn't been there a lot in the last year. And I don't think he had, a lot of times, like until something ends, whether it be someone's life or a party, you don't really have that, you know, you're just in it. And you're just going and you're doing it. And I remember there was a moment where Steve and I were talking to each other, uh, like right before AM's memorial. And he just turned to me and he kind of put his arm around me and he was like, fucking banana split, dude. And I was like, yeah, man, fucking banana split. And he's like, we might have changed the world with that shit. And I'm like, we definitely changed the world with that shit. And we just started crying. And and like it was a it was like we just knew it. Like we knew that it was never going to be the same. for any of us for better or worse. And then that's just how it ended. And we did the last one. Um, I mean, I, mean I, I keep looking up cause I have the poster for that up here oh. and it's signed by everyone who played that night, which was like Z trip, a track cut chemist, uh, justice was like, we basically had everyone sign in and play. Cause it was just like, well, we can't not like we owe it to our people. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like we had after three, three full years of doing the party, there were so many family members of the party. Like it was almost like, I mean, that was church for a lot of people, you know what I mean? Yeah. And mm-hmm. and so we didn't, we knew it was over, but we knew we had to do, in addition to all the tributes that we did to AM, we had to do a tribute to Banana Split. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, part of it was that it was still going to be small and we weren't going to do it in a large venue. And there was maybe 500 people that didn't get in that night. I went outside once to get to get an old friend in, 
And like I stood out there and Danny, the door man, just turned to me and just shook his head. And I just looked out and it was just silence because people aren't going to talk shit. Like people are going to be, I got to get in. I got to get in because they know it's like a slightly somber. Right. Cape. And every it was the most quiet 500 people outside of a Hollywood club I've ever seen. And I remember being like, man, that's really sad. And I was just like, I, I said to Danny, I was like, you know, who's who, you know, who deserves to be in there more than others, unfortunately. And I was like, please make this happen the best you can. But alternately it's probably better. Like if you just come inside for a half hour and let this die, like, right. And, and that was that night. And it was a crazy night. There's some great pictures of that night. And, and then I think that that was important also because I think Steve needed to become who he was going to become. And I needed to become who I was going to become. And it was like, it was, I think it, keeping that party going would have been, you know what I mean? It would have been the hangover part two and three well at least they were all in those i don't know <laughs> well what Something, do you what do you think would have happened they didn't have the ingredient huh what do you think would have happened what would do you, how do you think the party would have evolved it just wasn't like when you it would have been like having a party that dj am was a resident at except now he wasn't there anymore right you, know what I mean? <laughs> you have a, a weekly party where the best dj in the world is playing there at least once or twice a month and then like you've got me and steve aoki but also steve is like doing what he's doing and like you've got me and like what am i gonna just be in there fucking crying every week like remembering how shit used to be you right. know what I mean? yeah yeah so the, 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 we still there's maybe like every couple years there's an email where someone brings up the idea of doing something, you know, we were going to do something for the 10 year anniversary of his passing last year. Uh, I talked about in 2016 doing something for the 10 year anniversary of banana split because Halloween 2006 was when it started a party that I was not invited to. Um, mm. Wow. <laughs> and that's, I literally was not at the first one. Like they did it without telling me. That's crazy. Um, that was when I made the call the next week. Um, and, uh, and like and yeah, that was. I mean, I, I mean, it's just. I mean, the answer to the question is as simple as like, AM had died, and it was really at the heart of the party. We were all there for our different reasons, but like more than any of us, like he was there because he was in charge and he loved it, and it was all of our party. But like that was really AM's party. Like he was the he was the lifeblood of that party, and when he passed, I think it was a no it took us one round of emails to decide that it was over. Like, I don't think there, there was, there was not much of a, of a question about whether or not that should go on. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And did you guys want to ever do an anniversary? Like, yes and no, it's like, we, it's been brought up a lot of times mm -hmm. and there's a lot of rounds of email and different ideas and different people we try to get involved. And it's usually either a combination of Steve's schedule what is the right place to do it at? Right. You know, like what is the venue? Like what is it even right now? Cause they're, I mean, they have like genre things. They did like a dim max in a space reunion and they have like blog house memory nights and things like that. But it's like, what is a banana split reading? Like, I think the final banana split was literally like, if you look at the flyer for it, it says the final banana split. So like, I feel like that's why we don't do it because it's like, we did the last one. Mm -hmm. You know, like you can't keep having farewell tours when like the front man dies. <laughs> like you gotta just kind of right. I, I I do a lot of I like you know as soon as the stream started, like my second or third one was like I'm gonna do banana split music. Like I still will constantly pay homage to it. I love talking about it. Like mm -hmm. kids hit me up 
in DMs all the time just with questions about what it was like. I'm, I like I love to talk about it because that I feel like it keeps the memory alive. It keeps the am alive. Yeah. But in terms of doing the party, I the pressure of it of having it even come close mm-hmm. to the magic that it was when it was real, like it's too much. Like it's how do you do it? You know what I mean? How do you do it and not even even if it's great, is it going to be better or even as good? You know, probably not. Mm. It, it's crazy because I, I you mentioned like playing a I set. I want to do a fucking AM hologram or some shit no, like no. that. Like, <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> no don't, don't do that. <laughs> I learned anything from being on Mushrooms at Coachella and watching Tupac is that nobody wants that. Yeah. yeah. But I think it's funny that you said you streamed, uh, you, you know, you were on live stream and you played a Banana Split set. But it's funny how the music is so tied into that party from that era. Even fashion you know, played a banana split set on his um, Twitch stream. And I just forgot a lot of these songs. And I'm like, wow, it's so crazy how this movement, this musical movement was represented by this one party so strongly. You know what I mean? And I think there were so many specific memories for people with specific songs, because definitely for the first year, there wasn't, it's like any genre when it's new, you know, like when there's like, anytime there's like less than a hundred or like 50 songs of something like that's when you can say that like you like a genre mm-hmm. like electro house was dope when there was only like eight people doing it and there was only like 50 songs and every week it would be like well if this guy didn't play it then i get to play it and there was only a certain so you get those specific memories like in this like remember when trap was new and like every single thing that you heard was the illest and like you couldn't wait to play it and you could just drop it because you knew that after the clap buildups and the bass hits that everyone's going to go crazy. Mm-hmm. It was the same way I think with the banana split songs, like there was just a certain time where like it wasn't, people didn't even know who the artists were or what the songs were. They just knew that it was a sound that they couldn't wait to hear and it was new and exciting. Yeah. And I think for DJs like fashion, who was kind of our unofficial resident and, um, and a lot of other people, there are a lot of songs that maybe they didn't get to play at that time or that like, you know, there were definitely songs in that first year that like I was not allowed to play because Adam or, or AM was playing. And it wasn't until like when they started not being there at 1130, I was just like, it's my fucking time to shine, baby. I'm going to play all that. Shit. <laughs> Let's go. Oh. And there's definitely I mean, there's like 30 or 40 songs, I think, that would be considered like you know, the tunnel bangers of banana split, banana yeah, yeah. split. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. Uh, it's such a, it's such a, uh, I remember that era so well, because even when I would see motherfuckers from LA, they would visit Vegas, you know, like the big thing back then was trading music, like coming to yeah. my crib, trading MP3s and shit like that. And I would always, I was always, I was always like hitting them up and like, yo, like, Yo, what are y'all playing in Banana Split? Are y'all playing this? What, 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 what's the new shit y'all playing in Banana Split right now? I would always ask them because I'd want to be like one of the first DJs in Vegas playing that LA shit. You know what I mean? I remember those times. I think about that a lot because I'm very like now people will hit me up for one thing. And like, I still try to be like the DJ clue of everything. You know what I mean? So I'm always just like, you can't have this or like, you know, like. I still want like if I have an exclusive, I still get really excited. But at that time, it was real magical. And AM was the one who set that off, man. Like that was his way. He wanted everyone to get on Serato because he wanted clubs to have Serato. And he knew that it was the future. 
And his whole deal was like, look, man, you buy Serato and I will give you my whole library. And he did that for maybe like 20 of us. Like he definitely did that for Stone. You know, Stone was a holdout. I feel like Stone didn't have Serato till like 06, maybe like 07. Wow. And like, uh, and there was, a, and, and, that, and, that, and then that became a thing where it was like, you would get Serato and you would get like your AM kit. So you had all your basic shit. You had like your Be Faithful and your 50 Cent shit and your party breaks and, and all that kind of stuff. And then eventually you wanted to start, get, you had to like kind of have your own style, like the same way you would have certain white label records and stuff before. So you would start ripping your shit so that you could still play your vinyl set. But then other people would have heat. And other people would were coming in from out of town because all because as you recall, Serato also made it so we could all get around a lot easier. Right, we were much more likely to fly to another city and play without bringing six metal crates. Mm-hmm. So like, you would go mm-hmm. like that. It was also a way of becoming best friends with people that you didn't really know because mm-hmm. you had something to talk about. Because you know, like sometimes, like oh, you're in town, let's get lunch. Like sometimes, like a date is weird, or yeah. like a you know what I mean, like a like, what is there? But, like, I, I could definitely say, like, fashion and I, like, that's how we became friends. Like, it was just like, yo, man, like, I, I fuck with you. You fuck with me. Like, let's sit in a room and fucking just, like, give each other each other's laptops and a fucking hard drive and just, you know, just have at it. And um, and it was like that, I think, with a lot of people. And there were a lot of people that I probably haven't met to this day who I spent hours online with sending files back and forth and, and trading music. Which was, which was cute, and then I feel like a few years ago I had like a full inverse reaction to it. I was just like, "It's enough! <laughs> like, I've shared enough shit with the world. Like everyone has everything." And plus, people were like, "Don't worry, man. I'm not going to give this shit to anyone." And I can speak for myself included. Like I gave it to everybody because I needed to get their shit too. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so like, yeah, yo, fucking, you know, AM gave me this. He said it can't give it to anyone, but like you don't, you really don't give it to anyone. Do do you feel like uh you know you're obviously from LA you spent a little time in New York that time in New York do you feel like it really shaped your taste in music and your style in DJ a thousand percent I I was technically a DJ when I moved to New York and yeah. I had tables and a record collection but like I I mean I practically didn't know what the fucking headphones were for you know what I mean like I just knew that it was part of that's how people knew you were a DJ if you walked around with headphones but like. I had never been in a real nightclub. I had seen only rave DJs and heard like four track mixtapes. And I would wonder how they did that. Like, because in my mind, people were doing those four track mixes on two turntables. Like, how do they have two instrumentals in acapella and they're cutting over it? Like, I don't, right. I don't have to work so much harder to learn how to do this. Cause I don't know how they're doing it. And I thought that house DJs were making live music while they were teaching, you know, like I'm on acid, like watching these guys when you're 16, everyone's treating them like they're the rolling stones in concert. I'm like, surely they're not just playing a song and then another song. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's hard to explain like mixing and blending and timing and when you let something hit and, learning a record before you play it and how to like shape a night like that's these are all things that are impossible to explain to anybody Mm -hmm, which is why i always tell people like i can't teach you how to dj right a lot of requests and offers and i've been made some very handsome offers uh you know financially to like 
teach someone how to play. And I'm like, look, I'll be honest with you. I can't teach you anything. I like the best thing you could do is have someone that likes you enough to let you play in their club for like a year while you suck. And like, that's how you learn how to DJ. Yeah. Yeah. Like playing in New York clubs because either a promoter liked me enough or stretch would let me open for him or whatever it was, was just how you learned. Like you didn't learn how to play right until you really fucked it up. And then, and then you would have to like, you know, you would play the wrong song at the wrong time or press the wrong button or, or put the needle in the wrong place or let the song run out. Or you didn't know that in the middle of party and bullshit, there's, you know, the music stops and there's fighting sounds or you know, like whatever it was like, you would learn that shit the hard way or like, you know, realize that something was only 40 seconds long, whatever it was. And it wasn't until you were sitting there with like, 300 people booing you or like throwing beer bottles at you or whatever that you're like, man, I need to never do that shit again. And I need to sit at home and, and figure out my set and figure out and like, I need to listen to songs before I play them. And I think there's so, I mean, you guys know there's a, there's a, there's so much that goes into it. Yeah. I think now you can teach, I mean, you can teach people how to DJ in the same way you could teach someone Photoshop. Like you could show them how a program works but you can't teach them how to be like the illest graphic designer, you know? How? Like I think playing field's a little bit more even because back then you didn't have to be a great DJ if you still had the records. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like you could still be like a Samantha Ronson or a Steve Aoki or whoever because like, Jesus yeah, Christ. you weren't like the illest, but like you had the same records that that like Stretch or Mark or, or, uh, or AM or whoever had. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. Steve Aoki had the same vinyl as all of us he just he people didn't care whether or not he was like doing the illest shit with it because like when you, you heard be faithful you got hype like whether it came in on the one or not you know so <laughs> when did you what made you what brought you to new york though i, I kind of want to i, I want to know what brought you to new york i moved to new york in 1997 to go to nyu got it uh, to go to film school mm. and, um a couple years or about in the beginning of my sophomore year, I was introduced to Stretch. How uh, did that happen? Because I've I've I grew up in New York and I've I was never able to meet Stretch like ever. <laughs> right? Yeah, my my um my ex brother in law uh, like worked in music and knew Stretch and had in some way um like he was kind of like he wasn't like officially his manager, but he was kind of like. Help, he helped him get a deal with Sony. And um, I kept telling him, I'm like, man, that's so cool. You know, Stretch Armstrong, like next time you're in New York, you got to let me know. You got to let me know. And I just got, I got a call one night and I had been, I, w- I was like out like partying with my college bros. I remember like, I was like, I was fucked up. And it was like, it was like a, it was like a Saturday night at like 11 PM. And all of a sudden I got a, a, a call from my brother-in-law that was like, yo, I'm at this club. We're at a bar right now in the East Village with Stretch. And, like, I told him about you, and we just did our deal with Sony. And, like, maybe, like, you could be his intern. Like, I don't know, but, like, come wow. down and meet Stretch. And I, and I, th- I guess it was probably a good thing that I was, like, a little faded because, like, I showed up, and I was, like, I was kind of loose. You right. know, like, and I was definitely 19, like, you know, I probably hadn't done laundry in like three months, you know, like it was like college life. 
Like I, I, I still don't know how I was even allowed to walk into that bar or sit at the table that I was sitting at. Cause that night, that table, I'll never forget like the people that were at that table. It was stretch mighty. My Paul Rosenberg. Wow. And, and, and reef. Holy and shit. John and check. And Jackie green. Wow. And, and I met them all at the same time. That's and, in- like, I remember, that's insane, Mike. That's crazy. crazy. Yeah. And, and and a lot of things happened at that table that night. Like uh Shecky had the first pre- like he didn't have the record, but he had the sleeve for Bad Meets Evil with mm-hmm. Eminem and Voice to 59. Yeah. And he was showing it to Paul and being like this is what's going to come out. And then and then they said to I think this was one of the things that got me in with them was they were like yo, like, have you heard this guy, Eminem? Like, this is going to be his next year. I was like, what? That's the next thing? Like, yo, I've been waiting for this guy's album. Because he had been, the one of the first shows I went to in New York, like, being in New York, I was real excited to, like, see New York shit. Like, all I wanted to do was go find out where, like, Brand Nubian and the Coco Brothers were and, like, <laughs> go see that shit. And so the Coco Brothers were hosting, uh, I'm sorry, Coco Brovas were hosting a... Uh, yeah, well, let's 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 call them Smith and West. Yeah, this is before the album came out, so we were still a little bit excited about the Coco Brothers. Um, they were hosting an open mic night at at Wetlands, and I went down there, and like the outsiders were like the headliners, mm-hmm. and they started calling out. They were like, "Yo, Eminem, where's Eminem? Eminem to the stage! Eminem to the stage!" And Eminem came up, and he was white, and which was shocking because there, there weren't a lot of white people in the club, and it had been like a five minute delay of him to get to the stage and people were loudly booing him. Wow. Just like, like that's who we're waiting for this fucking guy. And like, he got mad heated and he did some straight up eight mile shit where he like grabbed the mic acapella, you know, and he was just like, Oh, you don't like me. And I don't like D and like, and like fucking destroyed. And like everyone was just like, ah, and I was like, oh my God, who the fuck is that guy? Eminem. And that name stayed in my head. And then I saw him in Unsigned Hype a few months later. Yeah. And then at Smoke and Grooves Tour that year, in the Fuji set, like in the middle of the set, Wyclef was like, y'all want to hear this shit we've been listening to on the tour bus all year? And like they played My Name Is. And I'll never forget like hearing just the first bar of that coming in and fucking, hi, kids, thing you like that. And I was just like, oh my God, that's my fucking dude. And like, and then Jazzy Jeff had just the two of us on his mixtape on the vibe I'm on. Mm-hmm. Like that whole mix is all him cutting up, cutting up crazy, and then he just goes, "And now I'm gonna play some new shit." And it's like this mushy demo version of just the two of us. Like that's how ill Eminem was. That like everyone, like the Fugees were stopping their show to play this song, and Jazzy Jeff in the middle of his mixtape was like. It's the only thing that he was playing not on vinyl on that shit. Like, like we all agreed that this guy was like real special. Yeah, yeah. And so I'm sitting at this thing, and then and and this guy pulls out this record. I'm like, this looks like a couple of porn stars. Like, what does this have to do with Eminem? All right. And and he's like, and then he turned to the back. And he's like, yeah, this is Eminem, and then this is Royce. And I was like, yeah, Royce, he's the other guy that's on that's on that. You know, they had that they had the song "Bad Meets Evil" mm-hmm. on on the demo, and I had the demo tape thing. Like, I had. I had, I had broken my ass to like be on Canal Street and somehow get that original version of the Slim Shady LP 
And like that was, I think that's how I won over all those guys was like, not only did I know who Eminem was in, so this is, that night would have been like October or November of like 1998. Mm. So 22 years ago. And like, I, and I walked up to that, to them and like, I knew who Eminem was and that, and, and what's it called? Uh, Slim Shady LP came out. I want to say like February or March of 99. Mm-hmm. And like my name is was like just about to drop, and so the fact that and like so like I I, w- I was able to like in a very quick couple of minutes like show them that I was up on new shit, and that I like I really cared about music, and that like and like so I think I was able to impress all of those guys very quickly because they were just when I think back on it I'd never really know why they were all so cool to me because i must have looked i mean when i see pictures of myself from that time like i look like a mess like i'm just a mess like there's a, it's like i couldn't grow a beard i've got like the half mutton chops like i'm never gonna shave this shit you know what i mean like i just i, I hadn't shaved in my life like it was just whatever was there was there and some giant cargo pants and a dirty ass shirt and like a very sweat covered backwards fitted hat and that sounds like what i used to what i used to wear pretty much yeah i mean what we all wore but you know what i mean like when we didn't have to you know i was 18 i wasn't getting into nightclubs i wasn't like getting dressed up for anyone it was it was, it was uh, and, and that's how i met stretch was i was all basically i met all those guys at the same time and i think my comments about knowing who eminem was and an excitement about this bad meets evil thing yeah um caught their ear and then as the night went on like stretch and i just started talking to each other about like like hip hop and stuff because it's all because Mighty Mai was at the table too and I started saying you know like oh yeah man like the high and mighty like I love the b boy document like I just bought that right. twelve at, at Fat Beats and like this is like pre b boy document ninety nine like just the original first b boy document mm-hmm. and like so I just think that that I was up I was up on stuff enough that like I had a lot to learn but that it wasn't like Stretch was gonna have to like teach me all about music. Like I knew about Fat Beats, I knew about the High and Mighty, I knew about Eminem. Like I knew enough that there was something for him to work with there. Yeah. And like literally the next day, my brother-in-law called me and was like, "Hey man, Stretch really liked you, and like we're opening the offices in a couple weeks, and he wants you to start coming down there, and um, and just basically two or three times a week, whenever you don't have classes or whenever you have some time, and he's gonna come up with some shit for you to do." And then I went down there maybe like four or five times before he actually showed up to meet me there, which was which was how I got to know Sheck because him and Sheck shared an office. And um, so I would come down there and Shecky Green would be like, hey, I remember you. You're the guy that knows who Eminem is. He'd be like, what the fuck are you doing here? I'm like, well, I'm Stretch's new intern. I'm waiting for him to come here. He's like, yeah, you're going to be waiting a long time. He's like, you want, some, you want to listen to some demos? And like that was the beginning of game. So like, and Sheck was just like, yeah, do you smoke weed? And I said, yes. <laughs> He's like, cool. Do you have some? <laughs> and I was like, yes. And so, and that became a very important di- I learned very quickly. <laughs> to always have weed on you? Being the guy who had a pocket full of weed could go very far wow. in the rapid <laughs> and i was also from la so like not only did i had weed i had like weed the likes of which like motherfuckers in new york had never seen really yeah yeah the og yeah well because like they well yeah well they had like you know they had there was only like a few kinds of weed available there was just like the regular shit the regular, chocolate tie 
<laughs> yeah, that's it. <laughs> that's even a thing. And then, uh, and then you had like the weird uptown, like you had the Pude, which was like a the, the like the beat nuts and those guys smoked. But I feel like that shit had dust in it. And then, yeah, <laughs> like there was the good weed, which was the delivery weed, which was you got like a gram and a half for fifty bucks. Wow. And this is like ninety eight. So adjust for inflation, you know, that's like a hundred and seventeen dollar gram of weed. A lot for a fucking gram and a half. Yeah, right. And uh and so I would have like a half ounce in my pocket all the time. So and so Sheck Jesus. learned that quickly. And Sheck was the poker player. Sheck taught me that like you can't lie to professional poker players, which was weird. Because there were times where he would come in and he would say, Do you have any weed? And I would say, No, I don't. And then he would look at his boy and he'd be like, it's in his, uh, it's in the inside uh, pocket of his jacket. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> How did you know that? And he's like, well, it took you a second to answer and your eyes darted that way for, it's like, he taught me about like tells and, and, and hold them and like shit like that. And I was like, oh man, I really got to think twice before I like go around lying to people, I guess now. Oh, wow. I didn't <laughs> That's crazy. Well, also at a certain point, once you like, it was cool to have a half ounce, you know, but then after a while, when it became known, when like all the rappers just knew it was there, like, you know, that's start. I was an intern. Like that shit got real expensive. <laughs> <laughs> so Stretch's record label was Spin Inc., right? It was called Spit Inc. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so not much. This was how me and Jack became friends, really, was like I was always basically. But the first time Stretch came into the office, it became a thing of like, yo, here's like 10 years of Stretch and Bobito dat recordings. And I need you to just listen to these and just start writing down what they are. That was like one of my first jobs. Oh, wow. And um, which I was like, this is, this is amazing. Like I get to do this. Um, so that was cool. And then I graduated to opening promos, which was even cooler. Um, you know, and I would be like, Hey man, you got eight copies of this. Like, can I take two of them? And he'd be like, no. Need eight. <laughs> so then uh, on the low, I took some. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh and 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 then it just became a thing. Like Spit Spit was uh was the deal was the deal that he had done with Sony. So we had we signed a couple artists, we recorded a fair amount of music, nothing really ever came of it. But I think the more important stuff that happened to me during that time was my relationship with Shecky mm -hmm. and the kind of like uncle slash like cool older brother vibe that he took on in my life. Cause I think he knew he was kind enough to see like a young man with no game and some amount of potential who was not the worst guy. <laughs> and like, and he would just take, and he was very quick to be like, don't say shit like that. Or like when people like this are in the room, like, don't talk about this or like, it's not cool to like, he taught me a lot about like, just cause you have information doesn't mean you need to go around telling everyone about it. Or like, mm. just because you feel a certain way about something doesn't mean it's like always time for you to give your opinion. Right. And he also taught me that sometimes it was not time for me to be there. You know, like he would be like, we'd be all hanging out all day and then we would all be in the back smoking weed and listening to rap and whatever. And then he'd be like, cool, yo, let's go to shine you know, so-and-so's DJing and, and Eminem and Cypress Hill are there. And I'd be like, yeah, bet. And he'd be like, no, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, not like, not, not you, like not yet. He's like, one day you'll get a call to come meet us at shine. And mm. like, 
you know, you'll know when the time. It's <laughs> funny. And he was right. Like one day he called me straight up and was like, yo, I'm with Cypress Hill at Shine. Like, come meet us. Like, you're ready. You're ready. And he's like, and, and bring weed. Then bring weed. Bring weed. <laughs> bring, weed bring weed to be real. That <laughs> Ultimately. The biggest, ulti- one of the best. I mean, still to, to date. I mean, you know, I smoked weed with Be Real as recently as, you know, like a year ago or something like that. It's still the coolest thing. That, oh, wow. Yeah. I imagine. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing better. It was cool when I was 19 and it's cool when I was 40. It's, it's, I mean, it's still, it's fucking Be Real, dude. Shecky's, <laughs> Shecky also introduced you to AM in New York, right? Yeah, he did introduce me to AM yeah. in that yeah. office. Well, that's what I meant by like the working for stretch part was light. Like out of a five day work week, there was maybe like a day and a half where I was working. Yeah. Because also like he wasn't he would de- he would be DJing at night, so he wouldn't be in the off. Like he would come into the office at like kind of four o'clock to go through his records and then go to the studio maybe and be like, yo, yo, make a list of things we have to do. But the workflow wasn't heavy. Mm-hmm. And then the game part of the office, there was always shit going on because Shecky was putting out a record like every month, right? And yeah. he was the rappers come through, and he was always having people come through the office. And AM was one of the many people that came through the office. Uh, he was there. He was in New York touring with Crazy Town. Wow! Yeah. And, uh, and he said to me, he said, "Hey, do you know this guy? Uh, AMG, I believe was his name at the time. He said, do you know this guy AMG?" And I said. No. And he goes, yeah, his name is Adam Goldstein and he's from Beverly Hills and he's from da da da. And then it turned out that like my, turned out that people I knew had like been his kind of like, basically my oldest brother had once, (laughs) I don't think I've ever really said this in public before. It turned out that my oldest brother had kicked AM's ass like in... (laughs) in like 1991 or something for like repainting in his bathroom. Wow. <laughs> like, like AM like got up on my brother's bathroom wall at a party and it got his ass beat. Bye bye. But it was like this weird thing where we made all these connections and he was like, Oh shit. Like you're so-and-so's brother. Like, yeah, he kicked my ass like uh, when I was young and, and all <laughs> kind of weird stuff. Like, you know, or stuff like weed from this other guy, you know, and like there was all there was just these weird connections and we knew a lot of people. And then uh, there was a Shecky's friend, uh, DJ Kid Swift, who's like a bit of a Philly legend, um, was working in the back a lot and was kind of in charge of the DJ equipment that was back there. And he was back there cutting. And AM was like, yeah, let me cut with you. And these guys started going back and forth. And it was like crazy because Kid Swift, Swift is like Sheck's age. So he was like, he was a guy who had come up with jazzy jeff and stuff yeah and really was there for like the invention of certain cuts and things like that and i remember him being like yo this guy is like really ill i mean people would come back there and practice all the time but there was something like i mean we've all seen am play but like there was something about a guy who looked and sounded and acted the way he did which was not like a battle dj Mm because he wasn't a battle dj like he would battle people but he wasn't he didn't fit the description of a battle DJ. Yeah. Some kind of rock star. You know what I mean? Like, cause he was crazy town's DJ and he came in, he had like a he had purple hair with like kind of a Mohawk thing. And like maybe some amount of glitter on his shirt or something, you know, like, like shit wasn't like, he wasn't like one of us, <laughs> you know, but he was like, he was so ill with the cuts and it was in that back room at game in the same place that, that I heard these blase blase demos or like, 
talk to Thurston Howell for the first time or like a lot a lot of real crazy like life transforming moments happened for me in that back conference room of games which was what Sheck wanted it to be like he always wanted it to be like he had like the turntables back there he had bongs and rolling papers and ashtrays everywhere and he had a little bar that would roll out with Henny and you know what I mean like he had like he always wanted to make it a space where like you could just put because he could put people back there and not be there too. Like it was a thing where he's like, this guy's in town, so he's going to come down. But like, I have meetings. So like you and Swift and AM go hang out in the back and do whatever. Like I'm going to go do my shit. And then it would turn into like a cutting session. And then other, like maybe like Blase would show up and start smoking weed and rapping along to them, like cutting and like, just wild shit would happen back there. Like wow. I met a track and Chromio back there, like before Chromio was Chromio, like they mm-hmm. came in as obscure disorder to play me their demos for stretch <laughs> a friend of mine from Montreal. And I remember a track was like 16 with his video camera. And he was like, he was so mad that stretch didn't show up. <laughs> and like, <laughs> like, and I felt it. Cause like, I was like, yeah, I was like, yeah, stretch is coming to meet us. Like, wait, like don't play me the demo. Like stretch is on his way. And like he never showed up, and they're like, "Who is this fucking guy?" And 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 uh, and I sat, but like you know, those are my boys to this day. Like I put out stuff on Fool's Gold. I was I I play for Chromio whenever they're in L.A. And that was that was all through game. Like that was weirdly all through stretch allowing me into that space and check kind of seeing me wasting my time, like waiting for Stretch to tell me what to do. Right. It, like all these amazing things would happen back there. Like I got to meet kind of one by one, like all my favorite rappers and producers from like Royal Flush and Tragedy, uh, MC Search, Greg Nice, uh, Nature, like all these, like that's how I have all these drops and like all this stuff. Like I have all these things that I still use on mixtapes to this day. And it's literally all things that I got in like one year of my life, like 20 years ago. That's so crazy. Just from being in that room. It's were locked. you uh were you like hands on or even involved with the game stuff with the Grand Theft Auto Three game or no? I was actually my very first my very first credit on any record is on um the Grand Theft Auto Three track. I I mixed I rec- I was the recording engineer for uh the song Spit Game, which was uh, uh Royce the Five Nine and Pretty Ugly. Pretty Ugly was the artist who was signed to spit who was a rapper from Philly. And then Royce was signed to game and then uncredited fun fact about that record uncredited hook by Khalees. Wow. Cause she wasn't supposed to be hanging around Royce, I guess. <laughs> uh, and um, what's funny is if you listen to the hook of that song, it's her going, La 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 la. She's doing like a la 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 la. Like it's literally the same shit she does on Milkshake like three years later. Wow. Oh shit. Uncredited. It's like, mommy, don't you play my game? La 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 la. La 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 la. La 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 la. Like it's the same la la's as on Milkshake. And I was, and I recorded that. And that was my, and I remember thinking like, this is my chance to get a credit. And I kept telling Shecky when he was doing the artwork, I was like, don't. Fuck, don't fuck me over on this because I had recorded. <laughs> <laughs> I did some stuff for Milo and Eric as, when they were doing the second High and Mighty EP, and I did it all for free. And I remember I told them I was like, 
you know, I'll do this all for free, but like the next logical step, now that I've smoked weed with all these rappers and like been in all these sessions, like, like the next logical, exciting step for me as like a guy from Beverly Hills, who's not supposed to be out here doing this is to like have credits on a rap record. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you gotta put like, you know, pro tools edits by Mike B like on this, on, on the second high and mighty thing. And it came out and they didn't do it. And I was like, ah, they, like, ah. <laughs> damn. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was no disrespect. I mean, it's just, I'm sure that, you know, making sure I got credit for the seven edits I did was not at the top of their list when right. you're putting out an album, you know, mm-hmm. Well, I got a thank you. <laughs> I got a special thanks, which was a one step closer. But like when when that Grand Theft Auto thing was coming out, and I saw Sheck doing the artwork, and it was going to be official with Rockstar Games and everything, I was like, make sure that it says. And I will say, I'll make a correction to it. I only recorded it. I did not mix that record. I don't think anybody mixed that record. I think it just was bounced from a Pro Tools session, and then really, the game. yeah, that's crazy. Damn. Red Spider did the beat. Red Spider was also signed to Stretch and I. He was signed to Spit. That's that's so dope, bro. Because that's just a pivotal point in my twelve-year-old life. Oh, yeah, you saw were it. Both at the time. So you, 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 you were listening to what you mean, Grand Theft Auto? Yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah, I got I got that on my twelfth birthday, I believe, or thirteenth birthday, and that was the first time I ever heard reggae and all that stuff. Really? Yeah. What I'm from, section what was that? Scientist. What was the reggae station on there? Uh, I forget what it was, but it was it was along those. Yeah, yeah. It, was like, it was like dub reggae, though, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. But it was mad dope. That was before Vice City. That was before they like licensed all the like real music, right? Yeah, no, that was like on some underground. Like, yeah. no one knew who the fuck it was. His game radio, you weren't in the car for that long in the Grand Theft Auto Three, as I recall. So, and even game radio, I think it was only like five tracks or something like that right oh it was it was about i want to say five stations there was a spanish one there was a reggae one there was a hip-hop one i mean weird... on game radio like the station that stretch hosted it was called game radio yeah yeah there was only like five six songs yeah yeah like five or six songs right there was there was the song i i managed an artist called lava who had the song on there by a stranger yeah the game record and I figured there was something like there was some kind of nature song on there. Oh yeah, and then there was the Agala record, "Give It All That We Got, Take It to the Top." Yeah, and yeah, that was that that was, that was really. I mean, that was definitely something. And I can say that Grand Theft Auto Three single handedly got like me and my friends through like post nine eleven New York mm. City. Like that dropped maybe like that came out in like November of two thousand one or something like that, right? Like that was uh, like, it was like top of 02. It was it was. Yeah, it was rough. Like, because like, that was a weird time, you know what I mean? And like, Grand Theft Auto Three was definitely like the first, like I think, real kind of post nine eleven joy. Yeah, like, and and it blew up. It was like the biggest thing ever. Like, I, I think I kept that game. Like, I didn't even buy Vice City because I didn't need it because right. Three was just so good. When Vice City came out, I like that's. I mean, that's the first time I think I ever like purposely isolated myself like from the world. Like, <laughs> yeah, I, it was great. Like, <laughs> Like, I opened up that shit, and I, like, fucking, like, I, like, scotch taped the map, like, to the wall. Yeah. My shit. You know what I mean? And I just had it, and I'm like, I need to get to fucking so-and-so island. Like, I'm over here. I need to, like, and you can listen to, and, like, all those 80s records and all that shit. All the yeah. 80s records. It was great. The Lamborghinis was available. Then you get on a moped and the motorcycles. First time you could have done that. So it was mad. It was mad different. But three, to me, was, like. 
Well, three was, was was what really really set it off. Yeah, it was New York based, and it was dope. And being a part of that, I remember, was cool. And telling my friends that because it was one of the first things. Like people in, I would come out to LA, and they didn't know about like unless you really hung out at Fat Beats like that, you didn't really know about game mm-hmm. records. You know what I mean? Like people knew yeah. was, and people knew who Royce was or Blase or, or or whoever, but like people weren't really getting those, like those records didn't like do, I think what Sheck thought he was getting in at that time where you could sell 15, 20,000 copies of a record out of fat beats alone. Mm-hmm. And I, and like, I think that that was the beginning of the end of that, the, you know, the like, jiggy era was starting. Like, yeah, it was getting really well, there was jiggy. A, there was a clear divide at that mm-hmm. point. You know, like it's like when the term backpack, just started coming around and I, and I feel like it can literally be traced to stretch and Bobito. It's like I was saying earlier, like any young genre when it's exciting and, and, and you know about it and there's only like a few dozen people doing it. Like if you, if you're a hip hop person, you're a hip hop person. Maybe there's one guy you like less than anyone else, or maybe you don't like, maybe you didn't like rock him as much as you liked LL or whatever, but you still like were a hip hop guy. Yeah. But I think like, <laughs> I always say it's a combination of a lot of different things. And I think it's like Dr. Like Dr. Octagon. I feel like that's like the birth, that's like the birth of like true nerd rap, not like freestyle fellowship, like guys from LA just saying shit you can't understand. Right. Oh God. Like shit that was directly appealing to like young white people. And being like, you know, like, I'm Kurt Cobain with devil wings and, you know, and just like the shit that he was saying and like, and working with Dan, the automator and having Qbert on there and bringing like, I feel like that's kind of the birth of what became like real nerdy rap. And then you have simultaneously De La Soul, um, Stakes is High, mm-hmm. you know, the first non-Prince Paul produced like, no, like we're like real serious now and like that's to me, like besides J Rue, kind of like one of the first albums where people are really talking about what they don't care for. You know what I mean? Like just whole songs about what you don't do and what you don't like. And like, you know, I don't go by Italian names and I don't wear these kind of pants and I don't sell drugs and I don't drive. Like, why the fuck are you telling me what you don't do? Like, who gives a shit? What you don't do? <laughs> <laughs> like, tell me what you do do. Like, who did you kill? And like, what drugs did you sell? <laughs> that was definitely a time where everything was split. It was like. It got real split. And yeah. yeah, so it was like that coming out and then like you're playing yourself and things like that. And then ultimately resulting in the split of Stretch and Bobito. Because at the end of the day, like that was the thing was they were no longer just two guys at the forefront of a movement. They were dudes who had been doing this for 10 years and both had very had grown to have incredibly different tastes. And I think it's really well exemplified in the documentary mm-hmm. where they both kind of found like the most ridiculous examples of like, a, you know, when they, they show like two like it's like Bob Bito shows a guy and he's like, I'm like, pow, I'm like, wow, I'm like, pow, I'm like, Zao. And then, like, they show another guy who's just like, I fucking destroy your fucking face and shoot up your fucking bitch. And, but, like, <laughs> it was just that like, it, it became real different to the point where they were splitting the radio show. Yeah. And yeah. that's when I started working for Stretch. Like, within actually within the first couple months that I was working for Stretch, I co-hosted uh, KCR, uh, WKCR one night. It was me. Really? Brand, 
Becky Green and PF Cut and uh, Wow, man. <laughs> it was a thing where we went up there and we just kind of like Jay Grand just started it because he's like, look, man, like I don't know where Stretch is at. I have all these promos to play and like, let's go. And I think he's like the head, like not something like 10 guys I used to hang out with and those guys have all taken terms, turns being like the head of Def Jam. <laughs> wow. He's like head of Warner Brothers now or something. But like Paul Rosenberg, Noah Callahan Bever, Joey IE, and like some like these are all dudes that were just like around and like homeboys back in the day, and they've all like been the head of Def Jam now for a while, which I think <laughs> is is uh, is pretty cool. It's a pretty cool thing to be. God, this this split ever release any singles? We 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 sent out some promos. We had yeah. the first guy we signed was a guy named FT uh, from a group called Street Smarts. They had that record Metal Things. Um, yeah. Which a big KCRW or w, WKCR record. Yeah, I love that record. Yeah. Yeah, it's incredible, right? Yeah, True Criminal Records. Uh, I think the B side was Problems. Bitches ain't nothing but yeah, problems. Yeah. Can't live with them. Can't live without them. Yeah. That was a which good was the same, It was the same sample that Dre used years later on 2001. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it was produced. I wanted, and, and Metal Things was produced by Ron Browse, actually. But oh, all, wow. Yeah, yeah, metal things was Ron Browse, and then problems was Buck Wild, and that was a big and like the other guys in the group were kind of not as good as FT um, or fuck that as his name was, um, and that was the first guy we signed, and we put out a couple tracks with him or like a promo through Sony, like a white label, and it never really went anywhere. And then we had a guy named Pretty Ugly, and he did a lot of crazy shit in his career, but he. <laughs> One putting out an album or a single with us was not one of them. But he's the guy that's on the Spit Game record. So yeah, in short, no, we didn't put out any singles. What we did put out was a compilation because after it's two years and spending a million dollars of Sony's money, uh, they decided they were not going to renew our deal because we hadn't done anything. Wow. And um, and the accountant hit us up and said, yo, there's $20,000 that you guys never used that's a demo fund. Um, and he said, if you don't use it in the next two weeks, it's just gone. So, like, figure out something to use it for. And, like, Stretch figured this it was the fastest I ever saw him figure some shit out. He goes, yo, we can make a whole album for twenty grand in two weeks. And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, get 10 producers. We get 10 rappers. We give them a thousand dollars each to make some new shit. <laughs> and he's like, and then we'll get, and then we'll use like a bunch of these songs that we already have recorded that are never going to come out. And we're going to use the Sony money. And then we're going to just put out this compilation on Landspeed. And it came out and it's called stretch Armstrong presents spit. Um, and we, I want to say we sound scanned like 11,000 copies of that or something. Like that. <laughs> <laughs> God damn, how, how the fuck did y'all blow through a million dollars back then? In- um, a million dollars over the course in t- of two years when you're, well, you know, after, I mean, the way I became a full-time employee was basically after that summer hit. So I'd been interning for Stretch for like six months and the summer hit and he didn't bring it up to his credit. I'm the one who said to him, I said, yo, if I quit school, can you start paying me? And he was like, let me check. And then he was like, yeah, for sure. And so he had me on payroll. He had his personal assistant on payroll. He had his student. We had, you know, half the rent of the office uh, mm-hmm. in Tribeca that we were splitting with Shecky. So that's some money right there. We have his whole studio, a brand new Pro Tools setup, mic booth. 
you know, laptops, right. computers, all the things you need. And then you have sessions with the rappers that cost my dude, man. It, I mean, you know, you're buying a new car every time you record like a verse in 2000, like every time we were going to do like record a new song for FT, you know, so it's like you go, you get a beat from Buckwild. You have to get a whole session at Chung King that costs like $10,000 for 12 hours for the night just to have them come out and like track out the beat. Mm. <laughs> so that's just like one night. Then you pay for another night just to have the rapper sit there and write to it and order Chinese food and bring all his friends and hang out there for 10 hours. Maybe you record like a verse and a hook and like hopefully at some point the song gets done. But even to get like three quarters of a song done, like, I mean, that's, you know, you're talking about like 25, 30 grand. Such a wow. different time, yo. That's crazy. Jesus yeah. Christ. Yeah. I mean, food delivery, paying people. I mean, engineers are getting 500 bucks an hour. Um, yeah. Car services, blunts. <laughs> like it was, you know, like every song cost, you know, over like over $10,000 to make. That's fucking wow. nuts. Yeah. I, yeah. That's, I remember paying even myself $75 an hour back then for studio it was crazy yeah right yeah i mean it's a lot considering we can do everything at home now yeah and I, and I remember really having that put into perspective for me when we made that compilation where we made 10 tracks in two weeks for two thousand dollars a piece i'm like man we could have been doing this the whole fucking time mm-hmm. like what were we doing in chunking we could have just been in your house with royal flush like making these songs you know what i mean like yeah. <laughs> it doesn't take all that but it was just that was just how it was done like that's how you know Sony executives weren't trying to pop in on sessions at Stretch's house. Like you had to come to Chung King and you had to have, you know, 40 diet Cokes and, and everyone had to have a $50 delivery meal. And like, it was, you know, like this, the money had to be spent. Jesus. Yeah. I mean, I remember about. like the money that was being thrown around in the music industry at that time. Like I remember when they did the video for B-Boy document 99, that, that, that mighty my, was like, man, they're only giving us like a quarter mil to do this video. Like, <laughs> like that's fucked up. <laughs> like, that's not enough, you know? Like, it wasn't enough. And like, they spent all the money on like Terrell Hicks or something. That video was kind of bad too. <laughs> kind of awful. <laughs> well, well, yeah, because they only had a quarter of a million dollars. Only a quarter, bro. Only at the time was like not shit because you know what I mean. Like to do a video back then, like Hype Williams alone was getting like a million dollars. Yeah, you know what I mean? a million dollar video for a major label single like wasn't shit. Like, I mean, now Rihanna videos cost like seventy five hundred dollars. Yeah, which is wild. It's because a yeah, bunch of lights in a room. Just for inflation, like these videos were costing more than movies. You yeah. know what I mean? Like for, for a quarter of a million dollars, you can make like a Netflix movie right now. That's true. <laughs> yeah. And like I, re- like, I remember like Mighty My being like, and I even remember being like, damn, yeah, like that's whack. Like Rockets should really be giving me more money. Than <laughs> the quarter of a mil. That's fucking nuts. <laughs> hey, yo, uh, Mike, I think we're reaching our time. So we're like, we're hitting like the two hour, over two hour mark. So, but I want to get you back on. We got to like talk some more shit. I know, right? This always happens. I'm long, I'm long winded, and like the stories are are deep and windy. No, it's amazing. It's amazing. I, I love it. I hope there's something. There's some like uh, useful narrative and all. Oh no, and, it was great. No, bro. there is. It's amazing. Was great. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, this is amazing, bro. It's a. Uh, for thank you guys. Thank you guys so much for having me, man. It's always a pleasure to tell these stories, and like as someone who's seen 
so many things, but like not necessarily enough that I deserve credit for anything, but like I got a lot of stories, you know what I mean? And I got to see a lot of shit. It's cool to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And I, it's like, hopefully somebody cares. I'm glad you guys care. No, um, I've been yeah, wanting you on for, for a minute now. And to me, you've always been an instrumental, uh, like representation of the LA club scene, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and even since I was first going to LA in the two thousands, you know, so it was always the Mike B. Yo, let's go check the Mike B. And uh, it's I'm 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 actually mad that I I didn't have you on sooner. So thanks for coming yeah. through, man. I appreciate the it. It was perfect, man. And 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 we'll, and we'll do it again, man. We got plenty more stories to tell. And definitely, and, uh, I want to yeah. get I want to get Shecky on with you one day so we can just go back. That'd be great. Has <laughs> Sheck done, done the show? Yeah, he did. Yeah, like the, f- the first year, I got to get Shecky and then and then Mighty Mai. Hopefully, he won't smoke up before he comes on. But like, yeah, <laughs> yeah he he smoked a lot last time. He, <laughs> he was high shit. He smoked before he got to the show. So he was <laughs> he was so Purpose zooted. Smoked before the show started. Yeah. Like even more rambly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he lit he lit up in between the session. <laughs> But yeah, she- yeah, Shecky was the one who told me about the podcast. Actually, I want to say like two. When did you guys start? Like three years ago? Yeah, three. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He hit me up and he's like, "You got to check out the, the the road, man." He's like, "That's what's up." Yeah. So he's still he's still putting me on years later. So <laughs> <Still. laughs> respect. Shecky's the best, man. Uh, he's he's the best. I what do you call Nobody. it? And no. then, but yo, thank you, man. Might be appreciate you coming through, man. Jamie, you want to um. Take us out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you want to watch this video alongside all the brand new videos that we drop every Friday, go subscribe to youtube.com slash podcast. Make sure you like, you comment, you subscribe, you hit the notification bell to be the first one to get the video on a Friday. And and also check us on Sundays on twitch.tv slash roadpodcast uh, every Sunday at 8 p.m. PST. And then, yo, uh, Mike, are you, are you on <laughs> Twitch? Are you doing any Twitch shit? Maybe. Um, there's certainly a channel, twitch.com slash the Mike B. I got about 82 followers right now and no content. Nice. <laughs> I've been posting a campaign that says when I get to 100, I'll do something special. Well, um, you, you've been on like uh, Fool's Gold Records. Uh, um, I, did, I do a show on the, on the Mad Decent Twitch. Mad Decent, yeah, there you go. Um, and I've, I've, done like, I've done like Twitch gigs yeah. um, and things, but I have not. It's quite a step to take. There's a lot. It's it quite, is, yeah. which is quite a, a Ponzi scheme, and I don't know if I'm all the way ready to go all the way in on that. Yet, Yo, you like, you you sound good though. I caught a couple of your streams, and they 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 were dope, man. And you go great. all out. You I do. I mean, you move fast, bro. For a big dude, you move fast, man. Yeah, <laughs> I was very shy. I was like, that's a nimble motherfucker right there. Yeah, <laughs> I've been saying this since I was in in high school. I'm very agile for a fat man. Yeah, you be, yo, you was making. Respect. I was like, damn, this motherfucker's quick. <laughs> I'm a dancer, my dude. You know. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Well, keep a lookout for the Mike B uh, on the Mad Decent, and hopefully he'll he'll do some uh, Twitch streams up there. But uh, yo, definitely, yep. yeah. always a pleasure, brother. Thank you so much, man. Thank you, guys, man. All right, Mike. Peace. All right, B. Peace. Peace. Peace.